In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Of journeying together, yeah, it draws you yeah. closer, and right, many many lifetimes, literally journeying together. <laughs> We've Ladies already got. And oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. That's all right. That's all right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. I hope everybody is having a beautiful day. I have an incredible story to tell you. For anybody who has found themselves in the embrace of a warm psychedelic hug. I have some people that may have made that possible for you. For anyone who has felt the chicken skin on a come up, on a realization that was about to change your life, I have some people that have influenced not only me, but the psychedelic scene. And it's, there's a story called, here's the name, there's the look of the book for people that are watching. It's called Brotherhood Hashish. It's the story of Ronnie Bevan and his lovely wife, Wendy. But the book, Possibly could have been called the story of Ronnie Jensen, James McDonald, or Roy Day, for that matter, because there's so many different characters. But in the end, it's it's an incredible story that talks about the the world we live in today, the psychedelic world we live in today. It's uh there's some there's some great quotes that I want to read from some people that talked about the book, and this one is from Tim Scully. It says, "I highly recommend Brotherhood Hashish." Tim Scully, chemist, author, creator of Orange Sunshine. Ron's book is a testament to the spirit, adventure, and spirituality that the Brotherhood of Eternal Love represents, Nicholas Shu, A cinematic odyssey to the psychedelic underworld, Chris Simonek. Thank you, Ronnie, for a true story with deep spiritual meaning, Michael Randall. And of course, a true story about the innocence and humble beginnings of what it was really all about and why we did what we did, Carol Griggs Randall. Ronnie, Wendy, thank you so much for being here today. How are you guys today? Good. Great. I am so excited to have you. Um, you know, I, I met you through Mark Rose. We should send a shout out to Mark Rose. He's probably watching this right now. Mark, thanks for uh, getting us in contact. Um, it's, it's such an amazing story. You know, as a young man, I grew up in Southern California, and um, I began to have a spiritual experience probably around 18 or 19. 
And I remember the first time that I went to a laser show and, and ate some mushrooms and I got this warm feeling of just this knowing or something like that. But it, when I got your book, it was really amazing to just to see how it all started. So I guess it seems to me when I, when I picked up the book, Ronnie and Wendy, you had an interesting childhood where you went from the Middle East and dreaming of raising pigeons to Laguna Beach and surfing. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the beginning of the book. Um, well, which part? Because there's so many different chapters there. <laughs> my life was changing so fast. My aliases were changing. True. Um, maybe maybe uh, so you find yourself in a in a. I think maybe one of the reasons why you're such a good communicator is that you grew up learning sign language. That was probably a foundation for getting to read people in a way which made your life a little bit easier. Like how your father was was sign you sign language, right? Yeah, my father and both of my grandparents and my great, no, both of my grandparents and my father were mute, the three of them. And so that, that must have been an interesting way to, looking back at it, like you knew that probably wasn't normal. But when you use sign language, you really get good at looking at people's facial features. You really get good at reading people because you have to look at their eyes, you look at their hands, and you understand communication in a way that someone who doesn't sign, you know, doesn't understand. Do you think that's kind right. of accurate? Yeah. Yeah. I think that the reason I bring that up is because as we get into this book and we begin learning about some of the escapades that happened, you were really good at reading people, whether it was, you know, talking to Johnny Griggs or Dennis or seeing your beautiful wife for the first time, you were able to really read people's ideas and understand kind of what they meant. And I think that, that led to your spiritual path a little bit. I ever thought about that for a minute. Like it's, it's pretty impressive. No, no. That makes have, sense, though. We haven't done a lot of looking back. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, when you look back and you see what we did and the many, many other, you know, things in our life, it's kind of amazing. It's hard for us even to understand, but we were busy. Yeah. You know, yeah. if you get up every day and you go after it, you know, that's what happens in your life. You've accomplished quite a bit. Yeah. So one one part about this book that I wasn't really didn't know what I was going to get is it's like a geography lesson. And it kind of goes back in time where you were in Laguna beach in Southern California when Knott's Berry farm was free before there was a wall around it, you know, when right. Disneyland was different. What was yeah. it? How has it been to see that place change from the time you were there? You probably got to surf beaches when there was no crowds there. That's kind of amazing. Y'all got, yeah. There were, when we first started surfing, we were some of the first ones. So we didn't ever have a problem. You know, we were still careful not to go like to Malibu or somewhere where these clicky surfers were. Right. And at that time, a big group of well-known surfers were coming up. You know, I mean, they were establishing themselves. But the true, the beaches were pretty empty and we could go surfing pretty much wherever we wanted um, because we were early. You know, we were yeah. at the start. there, And yeah. it just happened to be that way. We just happened to tune into things at their beginning and that just has been our life yeah it's it was a really unique time especially for california to see that culture emerge right there and to be part of it and that's probably one of the reasons why you were so influential in in doing what you did you know it's when we move from the beginning of your story and we start getting into one of my the one of my favorite chapters was chapter six a year of lsd discovery and it's like from the blue liquid of the Sandos 
in Long Beach to the uh, Taquitas Canyon in Palm Springs. Maybe you could talk a little bit about getting blue liquid from Sandoz. Like Sandoz was like the first place where Albert Hoffman synthesized it. And then it came like, what was your first experience with the, with the Sandoz? Well, LSD? We, well, the thing is, we didn't know where it came from. Okay. I actually got a vial for my brother, and there weren't a lot of those vials. I think there was only one egg crate full of them. And Michael Holland said had come to Southern California from Sandoz and brought them with him. And that was the first and the last uh, blue liquid that we ever saw. It was like one batch, but it was so pure and so strong. And I do want to mention that um, as far as having the spiritual experience goes, the purer the LSD is, the easier. Mm. You know, you're not fighting whatever. It's It just allows everything to open up and you open up. And it, it seems uh, easily accessible. Where some acids that aren't so pure as that, you kind of have to work with them all. Yeah, it's, it's see, you know, it seems like the further it goes down the line, the more it gets stepped on. And then you start getting these weird sort of, you know, twitchiness or you start grinding your teeth and that kind of stuff. And you know, that's not the LSD. And when people tell us some stories, we tell them, you know, you either, you know, there's a lot of people, I took sunshine and then they had this, all these weird things. And I said, that wasn't sunshine (laughs) because that wouldn't have happened. Right. Oh yeah. There's, yeah. It's not like we didn't have our experiences with some off brands uh, (laughs) at time. And so we were familiar with that. So we we took the LSD like right away. I was totally intrigued with it. So we took right. it once a week on the weekends for, I really don't know the time frame. But we did a lot of different things like go to Disneyland and, you know, walk out in nature and do yeah. things. But we hadn't experienced the, the religious side of it, the, the metaphysical side. That was something that had to come. So, uh, you know, we, we were experimenting. I don't remember the time frame, though, if it was four weeks, six weeks or something before where you read that one where I was standing and the clear light came upon me. Uh, that was something that just happened in um, evolution, let's say, or succession of our experiences. And that point, everything changed. And that's yeah. the experience that you were talking about right. that a lot of people do have. Yeah. It's, it's an interesting relationship because I think it starts that way for a lot of people. In the beginning, there's it's almost like a marriage because it's it's like you start off in this courting phase where like you have a little bit of LSD and you get familiar with it. And there's this there is this playfulness about it. But soon after, there's this beautiful love that comes about it. And that's sort of that spiritual experience. And, you know, when I, I in the book, you talked about the first time using with the blue liquid, and then you start talking about going out into nature. And I want to read the quote because I thought it was transformative. Okay. And it was something that people said. And so I imagine you in the uh, Taquitas Canyon in Palm Springs, and you're out and you find this beautiful area. And the, the quote is, then one afternoon, something different happened. Several hours into our session, I was standing in the stream and everything around me turned into light. I saw how all things manifest from one source. It was like I'd waited my whole life for that moment as endless amounts of knowledge poured through my mind. Like that's such an amazing quote because I think so many people have had a similar experience. It is a spiritual experience. Maybe, can you take us back to that moment? Maybe describe it a little bit. Well, there's (laughs) a lot to describe. Um, You know, we had learned to take her LSD and 
sometimes we had hiked, uh, you know, the psychedelics give you energy. Right. They're a really good thing, especially like mescaline or, uh, you know, mushrooms. They give you energy to do things. And you actually can hike if you can isolate yourself. Like we used to hike through the crater and no one would, and, and Haleaka, and no, they wouldn't see anyone the whole day. So you could take uh, some psychedelic, um, be still for a couple hours. And then at that point, you could physically exert yourself. And um, so at that time, we were going to, up to Talkwitz and we were actually climbing up the stream and climbing up the rocks and getting to the streams in the back. And that was our experience was having the day of uh, exploring in nature on LSD. And when the, after that hit me in the stream, after that, there was no more um, exploring. There was no more hiking. There was no more nothing. When we took our LSD, we laid down. Mm. And we were down for a good five hours before we got back up. And in that time was when we had the LSD experience. And that is the experience that we were able to show to hundreds, thousands of people. Our group, the Brotherhood. Yeah, I remember hearing the story in the book. You talk about going to Black's Beach with Johnny Griggs and, and laying down after he had met with Timothy Leary and brought back these papers and stuff like that. Maybe you could introduce the people to, to Johnny Griggs. And, you know, you, you spoke eloquently about him and talking about he's one of the most enlightened people you'd ever met. And I thought this interview wouldn't be proper unless we kind of brought him up and you could kind of talk about him a little bit. Well, he was, or whatever, is the most enlightened person I ever met. There's no doubt about that. And we've met all the high lamas. We've met a lot of people, Timothy Leary, you know, so many people, but no one was like Johnny. I don't know what the deal was, but he was a very advanced soul. And uh, he wasn't with us very long, but you'll find, I think I said in the book, that a lot of prophets and advanced spiritual people, don't they don't live long. They're here, they have a message, and they're over. But no one was like him. He was the most charismatic person I ever knew. He was His energy was so active. And he recognized everything right away. For him, it was easy. He you know, took acid a couple of times, and bam, there it was. Mm-hmm. And once you merge with that light and that consciousness and that oneness, you really can't go back to playing around with psychedelics. Like I said, you could take small doses of mushrooms or things like that. and have physical experiences like walking through a forest or mm-hmm. up a creek or whatever. But if you take a strong dose of LSD, we never had a choice but to lay down. And when everybody <laughs> went when everybody went out with us, they also laid down and we took them away. We were able to show them that experience that we had experienced by ourselves. Yeah, you know, there's something that happens when you lose the ability to speak or even communicate and you just because all you could do is lay down and just kind of become of it you know it's it's interesting to me this this experience you know when you talk about johnny griggs or you talk about having a spiritual experience on some level it makes everyone around you afraid like they're afraid of you because you've had this experience that they can kind of see in you you know it seems to me psychedelics are the one drug that makes everybody around you trip out it's kind of weird right well (laughs) We are all connected mentally, and there is a lot of that. Um, what do you call it when your brain's going? The, um, there's a lot going on in the ether between us that people don't think about. Like, like mine. Like, if you sit in a room and someone has a thought, and then three other people have that same thought, 
those things happen and they happen because we're connected. And if you can get that connectivity raw enough, you can see through it and you can see, for instance, um, you can see the energy in your brothers and sisters. You know, when you look at them, you don't see uh, George anymore. You see God. And that is inside all of us. Yeah, it's that's really well said. And, and maybe that is what scares people is when you can see through them, you know, and you can understand that they are you in some way. And you recognize the fear in yourself that's in them. And like it can be, you know, what we describe as love can be very frightening for people who've never been loved before. Maybe that's part of it. Yeah. Um, you know, the, the ego has no mm. place in the psychedelic experience. And the ego is the individuality that we all carry with us. So sometimes when that gets threatened uh, and people don't have tools to go somewhere else, or they're not with some guide that can, you know, get in between there and take care of it for them, then they can have a bad experience. But I want you to know that out of the thousands of people that we took out on these experiences, and sometimes there'd be 20 or 30 people with us, and maybe three established members from the brotherhood only, but they would all, they would all see that whole picture. And we never lost anyone. We never had anyone jump off a cliff or go home crazy or do anything like that. Everyone and that was one reason we went in nature because you're isolated. People can't leave. You're in a house in Laguna Beach on, in the middle of the night. People can get up and go get in a car and, you know, go crazy. But being so far out in nature like we did every Sunday, we would hike into wherever we went, the forest, the desert, whatever. It isolated people enough so that when things came up, we could deal with them. And before we left that evening, everyone was back to the person they started out that morning. Yeah, I, I always say the worst thing that can happen to you on ALSD experience is you come back the same. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's, that's really good. It's true. Yeah. So. You know, I, I, I got it. When I was reading the book, I had this question because you talk about bringing people out into nature and, and everybody having an experience that helped them maybe understand a little bit better who they are. And then something changes, whether it's in the community or whether it's the propaganda that begins coming out, like Time Magazine and these different magazines start putting out different propaganda pieces that talk about how it should be banned instead of controlled, you know? And and then you even had a doctor from UCLA come out and try to write like a hit piece on you guys. How he much did. of the bat? Yeah, he wrote a hit piece on you guys, right? Yeah. And, and, and he was proposing to be our friend and was going to, See, at that time, LSD was legal, and there was a lot of controversy everywhere about what should be done about it. The government just wanted to make it illegal, but you had a lot of people with money that had had the experience and uh, were willing to fight it. You know what I mean? They were willing to spend the money for uh, advertising, whatever they could do to try to keep it how it was, uh, but that didn't work. They ended up making it illegal anyway. But yeah, there's quite a few articles in there. And uh, the other thing I just wanted to say that one of the big turning points was uh, Art Linkletter's daughter when she jumped out of the mm. building. Who knows what she was on? They Great took question. that and ran with it. You know, they could go, oh, hey, LSD. And that really, you know, affected people because of the popularity of Art Linkletter. And uh, so, you know, there was kind of a 
time when everything was open and people were experimenting and, uh, um, you know, it was an accepted thing of being a way to have a religious experience or whatever. And then it was a time of uh, people standing up against it and wanting to outlaw it. And over time, of course, they, as you know, they ended up outlawing. Yeah, I know, like, I'm just speculating here, but what, what was that? Was that the government and authority being afraid of people beginning to feel for themselves? Was it because the boundaries were dissoluting? Was it a power thing? What do you think was I the think power it was, behind it? I think it was a thing because anyone who turned on would realize that we're all one. That makes it impossible for you to go to war. Well, we we stopped that war in Vietnam. That was that was my goal. I was an activist, but when you know I first took acid, I I realized immediately this is it. This is what's going to work. And it was a thing. Also, you didn't have time to have meditate for thirty years to be enlightened. This had to happen now. We had to change people's minds and turn them towards the light and the love now. And to stop these wars and to change. And it worked. We did it. It'll never be the same. Um, I was talking to Carol and I said, well, hey, you know, we opened the doors. And she said, open the doors. That whole building's gone. <laughs> so, and, so, yeah, it, 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 that's what it took at that time to stop the war and to help everybody. And the other thing people don't realize is we were going on sessions with a lot of um, vets. Mm -hmm. that had just come back from Vietnam that were terribly traumatized. And we also, which is another thing that's totally swept under the rug, so many kids were getting electric shock treatments. If you were a hippie, the protocol was to get you in and get you electric shock treatments immediately. So there was a lot of kids that were really messed up that, you know, we cared for and uh, found that that really helped both the vets and those kids. And then there was just everybody else. So we we were just all one with everybody. I don't nobody ever felt they were better or higher or you don't. That's not you know LSD is a very humbling experience. Yeah. So you're not going to come out of it an egomaniac. So yeah, that's great. really well said. Yeah, I, I often wondered. You know, when I read some of the books or you listen to some lectures or you hear the accounts of what happened in that time, it does seem like there was a a an authority or a, a sort of power structure in place that was getting really nervous about everybody trying to disagree with them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. yeah that's true. But yeah, I, um, I do see that as like a, a, do you think it's like a high tide or is it more like a tsunami? When, if I, if we just think about what happened at that time and then we see what's happening now, is it like a tide that comes in? Is it like this spiritual tide? Or is this just like a tsunami that's coming all the way in and taking everybody over? Probably depends on how high of a dose you take. <laughs> that's such a good answer. <laughs> so, you know, if 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 we take if I if I can ground myself and get us back to the book here, I have so many questions. I'm so thankful you're here. My mind kind of races so sometimes. So let me let me put us back on track over here for a minute. I you know. The there's another quote that I wrote down too. It says the physical realm was manifesting from the vibration of the sound. That sounds like a pretty deep internal realization on a pretty high dose of acid, right there. Do you remember saying that quote? Well, yeah, of course, and that's because that's all there is. 
There isn't anything beyond that. And um, what the way it works is our this physical world we live in is all <clears throat> man <clears throat> manifestations of the energy in different vibrations. That's what things are. They're manifestation of energy in different vibrations. And if you, um, I want to throw in now, right now, something real quick though, that we even had opposition once we started having these experiences from uh, Hindus and Tibetans and, you know, people that are really on a path to find exactly what we were looking for but they found it through meditation and whatever their practices happen to be. But they weren't happy with us because here all of a sudden we're saying, look at, we can get right to where you guys spend your whole lifetime meditating in a cave. We can have that experience by taking a pill. And you can imagine that didn't go over good, uh, in, you know, with their doctrines and what yeah. they believe in and all their hard work, you know, to sit there like that. But the truth of it is, um, Everything breaks down to the sound of Om. And you won't find a Hindu prayer, Tibetan prayer, any Eastern prayer that doesn't start with the word Om. Every prayer starts with Om. And that's because that is the basic vibrational source that everything manifests from. And if you can get inside deep enough, that Om can start coming apart. You can see those vibrations slow down where the noise instead of Om becomes very vacuous and it kind of starts disappearing and once that disappearing the light manifests and there you are in the middle of all of it is that is that a practice that you guys would do while on acid would you would you meditate using ohm or well you know the truth of it is it was a ride and once <laughs> you took a high dose like that it was yeah. all you could do to hang on yeah it wasn't like you could you know enforce any of your things you were actually nailed to the ground if you tried to get up from laying down you couldn't get up and that energy and that's kind of what kept all the other people from being distracted and get up and trying to cling to their ego or something was because you really couldn't and that, that's why we took the high doses in the right. beginning too so you didn't have a choice and i kind of compare it to now that i've had kids it's like going into labor there's no turning back. It's you're gonna. No. Well, there is there is a point when you take the acid. All of a sudden, you go, uh oh, uh oh, yeah. <laughs> you do, and your ego recognizes it. Yeah. And your only choice is to let the ego yeah. go, it's or a, you're gonna be in a bad place. Yeah. It's, like, yeah. it's been nice knowing you. Yeah. <laughs> and you, every, yeah. I've, we've had that every single time you take it. it your ego goes gulp. <laughs> yeah, what's going to happen here? And you really don't know. You don't have a. You have your spirituality. You have your toolbox that you've accumulated spiritual things to get you back. You have the psychedelic prayer book. You've read the psychedelic experience book. I mean, you are prepared. You yeah. still don't know what is going to ripen in your karma on that experience. To, uh, I mean, you're not going to flip out or anything, but you're you're going to learn. You don't know what you're going to learn. It's and also, I've always said uh, by doing a lot of accidental uh, overdosing and stuff that it doesn't matter how much you take. You're only going to get as far as your karma is allowing you to get to see at that point. Right. So if you would take 25 doses, it doesn't mean you're going to get enlightened. Yeah. Yeah. 
No, that's not the, the thing. The thing is basically where you are in your karma and how you're relating to those energies once that you leave this realm. Yeah. Sometimes I, I, I liken it to the, like an environment. It's like you go to this place and once you begin to understand the environment, you can begin to focus on the objects in that environment. But in the beginning, you're just like, you're, you're, um, death by astonishment. You know what I mean? You're just yeah. like, yeah. Oh, oh, oh. you know, but after a while you go, okay, okay. Let me focus. Yeah. Let me focus. What is this over here? Let me look at this object. You know? <laughs> yeah. We, we've had ego deaths in a lot of different ways. And yeah. some were a little more strenuous and hanging on where there's other times that you just all of a sudden you're there and you take your five doses or whatever you're taking and you're sitting there and all of a sudden you're there. You're in the light. Mm -hmm. You didn't even see a transition. It just happened. So it yeah. was always refreshing and new, but we never had the fear. Yeah, uh, that you know, we always were optimistic and looking to learn more. Yeah, yeah, I think that that fear can set in, especially for some. The fear sets in the moment you come in contact with you, whether you accidentally get some on your hand or whether you take a big dose and all of a sudden you feel that come up. That come up feels a lot like panic. If you take a you know, if you're not familiar with what's about to happen to you. You, people can panic right there. And if they don't have someone with them to be like, look, relax, it's going to be all right. We're going to go through this little phase. Then we're going to kind of ease into this thing. But, you know, and another point I, I read in the book is that you guys capped everything at like 333 milligrams, which is like yeah. three yeah. times a dose that someone would take in a, in a modern and you day. you took five of those. And then, yeah. Then we that took was the protocol. <laughs> you didn't know. But that's why there's no fooling around then. You don't have that's people right. getting scared except for like a nanosecond. There's no time. Yeah, there's no time and to be then, scared at that And then we're all one and it's great. So, uh, yeah, that's. Wow. That is that is such a transformative dose to take. Like. Yes. I'm glad we talked about that because that, that explains the idea of being pinned down to the ground, not being able to move. Like that is. Right. That's right. right. Oh man, it's and, and there's no real communication at that point. Like, you're not able to really talk at that point in time, are you? No, no, there's no talking. Um, there is communication <laughs> through the okay. internet, but right. there isn't any talking. And um, we had that prayer book, you know, mm. that was the guide, and we used it every time after we got it. But we had had a lot of experiences without it. Right. So right. we knew the path. We knew right. what it was talking about. We knew all those different levels. But a lot of times those prayers are all um, they cover a certain aspect of your psychedelic journey. And mm -hmm. what can happen is at a point where you get where you're kind of struggling a little bit, you're starting to move around, you're not getting it. Right. You can read one of those prayers and it'll take you right back to the emptiness. And they work. Yeah, they, they really, really do work. work. They save people's lives. Yeah. If someone else is having a problem, you know, I mean, there's ways you're supposed to use the psychedelic prayer book. And, and you know, we did that a lot, too. But sometimes you'd just be so high. And if someone else would be, you know, all of a sudden they are struggling, I would just let the book open. And wherever it opened to, I would read that prayer. And it was the I figured that would be the and the words would just come off the page and actually read themselves. So it wasn't. And then everything would be fine. There was never was, a problem. Yeah, it's was that book based on the Tibetan 
Book of the Dead? No, that wasn't the one. Okay. Um, actually, Leary and Alpert and those guys right. wrote the Tibetan Book of the Dead, which at that time, to me, was quite confusing. Mm. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, jargon. There's a lot of experiences. And they didn't really take it from top to bottom. I think it's a great book for somebody that intellectual that wants to get into maybe taking LSD and understanding the process. But the prayer book was different. The prayer book was short and sweet. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, you're out there and all of a sudden you're struggling and you read this prayer and you just fall back into the the unity again and move, move on with your experience. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's all right there. It's very basic. Um, but it is the most wonderful book to have on an LSD experience as far as a guidebook goes. And um, you would see if you were at a certain place and you read a prayer, you'd see what it does to you. It's kind of amazing how to just kind of send you on your way again. Yeah, those guys were brilliant to figure that out. And a lot of the prayers were uh, like the Tao Te Ching, where mm. it's just in a nutshell, this is what you need, and then it works. So it was, it was good. It was always good. Yeah. You know, just on a timeline note was what was happening. What, when the brotherhood was being formed in California, was that the same time Millbrook was happening on the East coast? Were those similar timelines? Millbrook was a little ahead of us. Mm -hmm. They had, they had been doing a lot of the, you know, Timothy was involved with the college and uh, right. Alpert and uh, Watson, not Watson. Um, anyway the people that wrote the book um they were um they were doing all kinds of experiences experiments mm -hmm. and stuff and all those people in millbrook were not the same as the brotherhood right millbrook had 40 bedrooms in it whatever there was always people there allen ginsburg and the you know Thelonious monk you know yeah. whatever and they were taking lsd like they said there was always someone in the house on lsd and they would use it like to create music or poetry or mm -hmm. things that that happened the brotherhood was pretty unique in the fact that our whole thing was going out in nature with groups of people and laying down and leaving the ego behind and experiencing the metaphysical and that was one of the things that i that drew me to the brotherhood because i'd lived mm. i was in san francisco and then i got turned on to the brotherhood because i went there to i, I got some hash one time when I was in Michigan, my hash, his hash, and uh, as soon as I walked in the, as soon as I walked in the door and and smelled it, I was like, oh my gosh, because we had been doing Moroccan, and uh, I said, oh, what is that? And then there was a big hookah, and we set it up, and we did it, and I made the deal with the guy who brought it to turn me on to the place where he got it, and that's what took me to Laguna. So my first few trips there were basically to. To score, so and I, then afterwards, I I realized they were on my same path of how to take mm -hmm. LSD, set and setting, go out in nature. Because in San Francisco is wonderful. My family was beautiful there. We had a place in Tahoe we could go experience. So we were in nature there. But the Brotherhood took everything to a step uh, above, and you know, beyond, beyond and yeah, beyond, and uh, that's and when. I was welcomed in with open arms because they, you know, we could just tell mm -hmm. we were on this exact same page and I was a good worker to be part of uh, spreading the joy. <laughs>
<laughs> so, you, so you know um in the book you know that the book has mine and wendy's whole love story in there too it's got yeah our whole thing, how we met everything but in the book it says that we first met in the canyon when i was yep. over visiting from Maui. but now i now that we just talked about it i believe that when wendy got that that slab of primo that's actually when she first met yeah, <laughs> yeah it's in we from afghanistan <laughs> can you believe it she wasn't looking for the guy with the hash and married it yeah that's the best way to keep it handy yeah it almost reminds me of alexander shulgin's a chemical romance you know because you get the hash and all of a sudden you're drawn to the person that brought it there it's like it's just like a big deep love story that mingles through the book and the book is like a not only is it a love story, not is it a story about American spirit, not only is it a story about brotherhood and LSD and geography, but it's a, a story about exploration, you know? And you know what, in the beginning, when the when the um, the first hashish from Afghanistan chapter comes into view, I got a whole new love for the Volkswagen bus pop top. You know, I, you wow. know, I didn't know that they had all these little... In, those little spots that you could do and, and buying things in Germany and dot, you know, maybe we should move there. Like, so the first hash from Afghanistan, maybe we could start there. Okay. So also, know, let me, I just want to throw please, one more thing please. In there. The book, what it's really about, but we don't, we don't cap on it too much because some people don't think it's the greatest thing. But I was the only member of the Brotherhood that never got arrested. I was able to do everything I did. And you'll see in there, it's not because mm -hmm. I was super careful or I was, <laughs> I was better than anybody or anything like that. There's time and time again where they could have busted me. J just sure. for instance, that night I drove into Laguna from the Shrine Auditorium and got pulled over and had a pocket full of joints. Yeah. And maybe normally, I mean, I was a full on hippie. Full, yeah. you know, beard, hair, all the whole banana. And we was in Laguna, but the policeman end up just letting me go. But and that's and that's just a small instant. But that is one chance where if you would have looked in my pockets, I would have went to jail and I would have been arrested, which never happened. It's kind of like a Jedi thing. I think yeah. we just needed so much love that when they were they were there with us and we loved them so much. And, and had so much empathy and compassion for them that I think a lot of times that, I think they walked away sometimes and went, wait, what happened? <laughs> what <just laughs> happened? And, and another thing is to compare me to the, the movie, The Fugitive. Mm. You can yeah. have series <laughs> of all the different times when I could have been caught, yeah. they had me, but somehow I got out. And we I had you know, close, was able to get away. Close calls where we just uh, like, like a, riding a wave we managed to stay on the wave or stay in the tube and, and we <laughs> never really looked at it you know until no, never, we looked back never we never you know, thought then when about you it back you go oh my god you know look at how everything came out <laughs> yeah like when i was reading through it i'm like this is ridiculous you're gonna smuggle hash into afghanistan you're gonna bring it into india and a tape like you know that's the opposite you're supposed to take it out of there not bring it in there yeah. You know, and, and then in Colombia too, like getting pulled over. Like there was so many instances in the book where I was like, oh, he's going down right here. There's no way. Well, you did uh -huh, what? Yeah. You did That's, what? Those are the things I'm talking about. When they have yeah. me, all they have to do is one little move. And, uh, you know, somehow I was able to walk away from it. And I, I love the, 
maybe it's growing up in Southern California. Maybe it's being an exer. Maybe it's because my parents were, my dad was military. But I love the, on some level, there's always the pushback against authority, whether it's being pulled into customs and tapping your boot on the table. Like, yeah, there's nothing in here. What are you looking for? You know what I mean? It was always like, it was always yeah. this pushback. Like, yeah, I got nothing. You got nothing on me. You know what I mean? It's so brazen yeah. and so bold. And I found it really beautiful and welcoming, you know, and I, I love that part of it. It's, it's awesome to me. Well, speaking of that, you know, everybody knows the game musical chairs, but you played a game called musical instruments where stuff is hanging out of them. And, you know, when the yeah. first one came back, maybe you can tell a, that story a little bit. <laughs> oh, okay. Um, let me tell another story real quick, a short one. That was, is a perfect example of me escaping the authority. Yeah, of course. Of and course. This is, this is a, it's just a story in the middle yeah. of all of it. So you kind of need some backup. But the truth of it is that when I, yeah. when I was wanted after the wanted poster came out, I was wanted for 12 years, by the way. And um, I didn't have any ID when I came back from Puerto Rico. I really didn't have any ID. And we had an incident where I had to go get some ID. And that's another, that's a big, nice story about us getting away and escaping. But this one in particular, I have my brand new driver's license and I'm out in Sebastopol, you know, in Sonoma County, and I'm driving out to Bodega Bay to see Wendy. Yes. And what? This is a good story. Yeah, okay, it's a good story. So um, <laughs> all of a sudden, there's no one on that road. I was up in Rio, near Rio Vista, and, you know, it was midnight, there wasn't a car on the road. And I'm driving along and I've got a beer. I'm drinking a beer and I got a couple of joints in my pocket. And I uh, I look up and the, there's the red lights. The police are pulling me over. And I'm going, well, what, you know, what's the deal? So they, they I pull over and they pull me over to have me uh, get out of the car. And so I put my beer on the floor and I took my joints and I put them in a Kleenex box that was sitting right there on the other seat. I put them underneath, you know, in the middle of the thing. And so they searched the car and they talked to me a little bit and I was kind of hemming and hawing about what I was doing. And I said, but I'm really, I'm going to visit my girlfriend out in Bodega Bay. And um, they searched the car some more and there was two of them. One guy stood in the back with me while the other one searched the car. And then they came back to the back and they called in somewhere and they talked for a minute and they came back over and they said, okay, they said, uh, we'll tell you what's going on. Um, right around, right up the street, someone was just robbed of some jewelry. And you were the only car on the road, you know, so we pulled you over. And they said, uh, it's okay, you know, you can go now. And so they let me go and I walked back to the car and they're standing behind at the end, you know, the back end of the car. And uh, I start to get in the car and the guy says, hey, he says, by the way, he said that uh, Kleenex box isn't a very good place to hide your joint. <laughs> And and um, I went, oh, my God, I, I thought, you know, these guys could take me in right now if they wanted. So I got in the car and the joints were on the dashboard. They left <laughs> them on the dashboard for me. And yeah. I looked down and my beer was still sitting on the floor. So I drove away. Well, there's an instance where yeah. I could have gone down really easy. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Uh, but it's a great story that they let me go and mm. they let me keep my joints. I think a lot of it also really has to do with like everybody asked me, were you, weren't you scared doing all that stuff? Weren't you scared running international borders and things? And I said, no, never, because I never felt like I was doing anything wrong. I was on a mission of God mm. to, to turn everybody on to God. And, uh, you know, that's what I say. My favorite thing is when uh, going through customs, uh, made a lot of trips from here to Canada and, 
they'd say, do you have anything you're not supposed to have? Favorite line. <laughs> nope. Everything I have, I am supposed to have. And <laughs> just drive right through. It was never yeah. a problem. Of course, I always looked good. I always, you know, we right. weren't foolish when we went to do things, you know, like a lot of times guys like, you know, oh, we love hip chicks, no makeup and all that kind of stuff. Well, I'd get fixed up to go out. I'd come out of the bathroom. Everybody just. <laughs> so the, the first house from Afghanistan. Yeah. So my little brother, 18 years old, and Travis Ashcroft, they, we had some people that were smuggling Nepalese, uh, David mm. Hall and Johnny Daw, that were members of our group. And they had did one thing where they'd take golf clubs and cut them off short and made a space in the bottom of their golf bags. And they had done a couple of different things, bringing Nepalese fingers over. So Ricky and Travis at that time were, they were going to get a car in Europe and they were going to drive it to Nepal and, you know, put hash in it and send it back home. Well, on their drive, they picked up some hitchhikers and the hitchhikers told them, well, if you're going for hashish, you don't want to go to Nepal. You want to go to Afghanistan. And at that point, none of us had ever even heard of that. <laughs> right. So uh, they went ahead. They gave the guys, the, the hippies, their ride and they got to Afghanistan. And that's kind of their story, how they found that connection. But uh, it, it was quite a story. And it's real. It's a real nice story. And I'm hoping that it'll come out someday. But that's not my story. Right. So what they proceeded to do was they had enough money. They were going to try to bring back 20 pounds, but they had enough money to buy 76 pounds and they bought them all. And then they thought, well, how are we going to get them back? Not this old rickety car. So uh, the connection had an idea. They had all these Afghani instruments and they took the drums apart. You've probably seen the metal drums with the, with the, uh, uh, leather lacing at the top or wooden ones from, you know, they're pretty common from India and Afghanistan. They had some of those and then they had some tablets, which are the musical uh, like guitar things. Mm -hmm. And they had filled the necks of those up with hash. And anyway, somehow they got that 76 pounds into it and um, they shipped it to Germany and then they came home and they called me to pick them up at the airport. So I drove up to the LA airport and picked them up. And when they came down the escalator, my brother had an Afghani coat and he handed it to me. I almost dropped it on the floor because it had a couple of kilos of hashish in it. So um, I drove them home and on the back to Laguna, I was living in, uh, in Pomona at the time. And on the way they said, well, look at, we've got a shipment coming, you know, of hashish and we mailed it to you. <laughs> and I thought, why did you mail it to me? Why didn't you mail it to yourself? What do you, you know? Well, the Thank truth you. of it is, and I'll tell you now, they were too chicken shit. They were afraid to go pick it up. <laughs> so, so anyway, so, okay, morning comes, which was Monday. I guess I picked them up like on a Friday. We had to wait through the weekend. And uh, I had a Mustang at the time. And I rented a trailer, you know, a hitch, a ball, not a ball hitch, but one that clamped on a clamp on. You clamped on the bumper at that time. And I took all the papers. I drove up to uh, the um, shipping places are all around the airport. They're all on the outside of the airport. And I found the, the place I was supposed to go. And I went in there and gave them the papers. And uh, they looked at all the papers as I was standing there. They said, well, come in the back room. So I went in the back room and they had a couple of wooden crates sitting on the floor. And they gave me a crowbar and they said, well, open them up. So I said, okay. So I opened up the crates 
And right away, they started talking, but that's because they had sent animal furs along with the shipment. And the furs were on top, they could see them. So right away, the one, there was two customs officers there. So right away, the one tells me, you know, I don't know if these are legal to import. You know, we're gonna have to make some phone calls. So they said, take everything out of the boxes and put it on the floor and separate the, you know, the, the um, furs from the rest of the ship. So I busied myself doing that and we waited and we waited longer. And in the meantime, the stuff was on the floor. They were taking care of the rest of their business. And we started talking and, you know, it was the same thing, sports, you know, who, what do you do? What do you like? You know, just common conversation that right. people have. And uh, eventually it came back that the furs were completely illegal and that we had to leave them there. So they, they just said, well, leave that pile alone. And then they started looking through the stuff. So I'm standing there, you know, we've been talking for two hours and they start going through the things and they see the necks are broken on the stringed instruments. They said, oh, too bad that these, you know, broke and everything, you know, kind of a bummer, but they broke in a way that the hash concealed inside of them, you couldn't see it. The neck, you know, like Thank the neck God. was sitting there filled with hash and the bottom was too, but nothing was exposed. So everything seemed pretty, you know, like it was okay. And then uh, one of the guys picked up one of the wooden tablets and it was heavy, you know, it had 10 pounds of hash in it. <laughs> and uh, he goes, God, he said, this must be solid wood. And the other customs officer picked up a metal one. And it was as equally as heavy. And he looked at the customs guy and he said, yeah. And he said, I suppose this one's solid metal. And I'm just standing there. And they look at each other and they look back and they said, okay, you can go. <laughs> and at that point, they actually helped me load all of the instruments in those wooden boxes and helped me carry them out to my U-Haul. And I drove home, of course, looking over my shoulder, but no one was following. It was, everything was fine. And that was the very first shipment of Afghani hashish into America that anyone knows about. Anyone. Knows about. Man, I, I think that foreshadows too, like <clears throat> the ability to remain calm. I think that speaks to volumes. What Wendy was saying that, look, I wasn't doing anything wrong. What I'm doing is right. It seems like people tend to freak out on those moments because they get nervous. They think I'm doing this thing wrong. They start sweating. But what was it? Like, how are you able to keep your cool in that moment? Well, you know, I told you about our familiarity with the home. Yes. And if you're in there, you can get at it anytime you want. Mm. And I think probably I was just concentrating on, you know, the vibration that everything's perfect and that, you know, everything's moving along like it should and it's okay. And I really think that was my, uh, my defense against, being scared or, you know, wondering or anything like that. I kind of just kept a calm about me that was centered in the home. And, uh, you know, I think they liked me. I think the fact that I was sure. pretty straight looking and I, we had become friends over the two hours that yeah. I was in there with them. And as far as I know, they might even have suspected something was in there, but decided I was such a nice guy that they would just let it go. I'll never know that, but. You know, I kind of have a feeling that that's kind of the way it went. Well, yeah, maybe. And if I, if I just stay in that moment for a minute, you know, I, I think 
being able to face fears, whether it's instruments with hashish in them or speaking to an authority figure, the technique you use to get through the fear can be applied to our lives. Like it's a skill that everybody can use. And it probably is very beneficial when you find yourself in a situation where your heart rate is racing. Maybe you're a little nervous. Maybe you're scared. If you just center yourself, you can bring everything back in order and get through that process. Like that's a really cool skill. I'm glad you shared that. I, I think it's very beneficial to, to do that. And as you were talking about it, I began thinking about it. another thing that may have happened is those guys may have had a lot of respect for you. Like, Hey, here's this guy that just got back from Afghanistan. He, they probably never heard of it either. And they're like, right. Hey, furs, right. right. They're probably pretty amazed by it. Yeah. 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 I, was, I don't know. I mean, they were a couple of nice guys and it yeah. sure worked out good for me, but it's, you know, you wonder how did I run into those cops out there on the road that gave me my joints back? You know, why didn't I run into some jive ass cop that was just going to make a bust no matter what? Because at that time, two joints would put you in the slammer. There's no doubt about it. I think also we related to uh, people of authority um, as human beings. Yeah. They have families. Yep. They're, you know, they feel this way. And it was kind of a little opportunity to change their mind just by you know being in their presence and and respecting them and to be perfectly honest i think hippies are the, like the most patriotic people in america they only wanted the best for everybody in america so uh i always felt very patriotic and uh very respectful and i always would tell people too they're like oh cops or whatever i said oh really if somebody was breaking in your house who would you call yeah a cop you would expect that cop to come put their life on the line for you and yet you're being disrespectful so you have to just understand where they're coming from too and we did have two of the people that had created the poster come to one of our um oh. showings and they're real old now and we were the all guys that were after us yeah <laughs> that's awesome yeah we're, and, we're friends now yeah we're friends now and it was really nice to uh, meet them and have bygones they bygones. said you know what it's all over that's in the past they said you guys won yeah, and uh, now we're just enjoying our older life but they enjoyed the movie they watched the movie sat there in the front row and uh it was really fun meeting them and their families and yeah. now after it's all over and you know we were the bad guy they were the good guy but who knows who really was the good guy? The now we're all just one. humans again. Thank goodness. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. As you talk about that and we talk about the, the joints in the pocket or, you know, just the beginning part of, of meeting those guys and those custom agents, it does speak volumes. And I love the way you said that when like, we're all just people. And maybe if we all just treated each other with a little bit more respect, we'd all get a pass every now and then, you know, and if we could just right. get past this idea that, I am this thing. I am a cop. I am a smuggler. I am. If we just get past this, I am and just see each yeah. other as, Hey, we're both yeah. trying to get through this thing here together. Let's, let's work together. Like that's that's yeah. a cool part of it. Well, I had gotten pulled over one time driving into, into Bakersfield. When mm. you get off the freeway, it's a down ramp. Mm -hmm. And so consequently, when you pull onto the Bakers, it's a speed trap. Mm -hmm. And I had, my trunk was packed. And uh, I got pulled over and I thought, oh, no. Well, I had just seen this video of this policeman getting hit by a car by standing on the driver's side mm -hmm. of a car he had pulled over. So this guy comes, you know, the policeman comes up right to my door and he's like, hey, did you know? And I said, hey, go over on the other side of the car. Get out of the street. 
you know, you shouldn't be out in the street like that. That's dangerous. He's like, what, what? He wasn't ready for me to tell him right. what to do. And so consequently, I think I took a mother role with him and he went around to the other side and I opened the window and he's shining his flashlight in there. And I was listening to Mozart and, uh, it, you know, dressed nice and everything. And he just said, you know, well, you were speeding. And he was going to give me a ticket. And I'm like, oh, man, I've never had a ticket. Never once. I said, go look up my my driving record. I said, this would be so devastating for me to get a ticket. And somehow he's like, OK, ma'am, well, I'm really sorry I bothered you. <laughs> yeah. I said, yeah. you're just doing your job. You know, thanks for doing your job. Love you. <laughs> just so you know, for the people that have read the book or know our history or, you know, whatever things about us uh, or me anyway that Wendy had a life of her own before we got together. And she had driven a Volkswagen to Afghanistan and loaded it and brought it back. She had taken 10 grams of LSD over to Timothy Leary when he was in Algeria. And they, they wouldn't know, what's his name? Whoever was in charge there, I forget. He wouldn't let him have it. So she was had to take it back to Amsterdam. And they sat there in Amsterdam while they sold it all. And she smuggled hash back from Morocco and has done various other things through the years. And this was, this was <laughs> yeah, she went to Woodstock and this was all before we got there. So yeah. she does have a history of her own that doesn't show in the book, but we're trying to get her book written. So you see, she had quite an adventurous life before yeah. me. We were just, yeah. one just led to another, led to another, led to another. You know, I'd get to Detroit to do something and I'd have to wait. Somebody tell me, hey, we need something to go to Ontario. You go to Ontario, hey, can you take this to Montreal, and then I end up back in Detroit and get back to San Francisco. Those were her mule days. Yeah, <laughs> but I was delighted to do it. I was happy to yeah. do it. Anything I could do, I never cared. A lot of times, I never ever, you know, profited. Our our family profited. Everything was always to the family. You never you never kept money for yourself, and and that was I think that was that was good. So, uh, and the other thing I was going to say is my family in San Francisco was so beautiful. We take lots of acid. We had the house in Tahoe where we could go be in nature, but it still, when I. They were a well-known family too. We knew yeah, about them. Yeah. From, from Laguna Beach. We knew about them. Yeah. Yeah. A little lab. But uh, <laughs> anyway, when I came to, to Laguna, I really liked everybody. And then I had an opportunity right away to go to the ranch because I had heard about the ranch and that it was, you know, a, a safe haven to go turn on so you could be safe because that was an issue. And uh, I, I thought, wow, what a beautiful people to to have done something so generous for so many people. And I went to the ranch and of course I had my homemade long tapestry dress on and my hair tie braids. And so, I, you know, that's the way I looked. But uh, I walk in and first thing Carol says, and she was there with Barbara, who else passed away now, but she was our best friend too. And they, they both said, Oh my God, you should live here. <laughs> I hadn't even walked past the, over the threshold. So that was really fun. And then we got to know each other really well after that. And of course I had, I said, well, I'm kind of busy. I've got to get back to San Francisco and back to Detroit and back to Canada. So, uh, uh, that, cause I figured that be, until I had children, I wanted to do everything I could to turn on as many people as I could. And uh, that was my mission. To, to change people's minds. But that's what I loved about the Brotherhood and what initially brought them me to them is that, that we were on exactly the same level. And when you lived at the ranch, you were pretty much on 24 seven duty when you were 
in the, the working part to have be awake if anybody came down the gravel road that had come to the ranch and turned on, even unbeknownst to you down at the waterfall or at one of the other many beautiful places you could be safe there, they'd come and your job was to bring them in. We always had a pot of soup on the stove always for unexpected guests and you'd get them to the shower. You'd make sure they were uh, you know, cared for, they were fed and you put another log on the fire and um, make up the, bring out the sleeping bags for them to, to sleep in the living room. And everybody was always welcome. And a lot of times you didn't even know these people, but you could tell they had turned on <laughs> that day. Yeah. So, um, you know, and they were, that was just, it was so important to the brotherhood, which was my same mindset, the whole experience, not just taking acid, but reentering. Mm. Your reentry is so important to your final result of what you got out of that session. You want to keep your mind open. You want to remember everything you learned. And in order to do that, you can't get right back into things quickly. You need to take a little time to well, reenter. The process of reentering is a process of rejecting thoughts coming into your mind. Mm. And you stay that off as long as you can. But they liken it to a wheel rolling along a string. Eventually it's gonna run out of energy and it's gonna fall off. And that is going to happen to you, but your thing isn't, uh, it's really, um, it creates kind of negative effects if you rush back into your ego and rush back into all those things that you were doing and don't experience that withdrawing from the, the oneness and learning everything you can at that point. And staving off the ego uh, seems to put you in a better place when you finally, the drug wears off and you're back into your body. The sacrament. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it reminds me of the Wendy, the way you describe the hospitality you provided people seems a lot like the hospitality that was afforded to both of you when you would go to Iran or Afghanistan or the way people right. would take care of you. It's pretty yeah. interesting how that works. Really nice. Yeah. Yeah. The, the people were wonderful. Yeah. yeah. You know, I know it was a bad time political with the Shah and the mm. CIA and doing all that. But I don't know. I'm, I don't want to get into politics, but sometimes yeah. you need a strong arm mm. to hold down certain groups of people. Yeah. And it won't manifest unless you get that strong arm in. So, but we were too young, 21 years old. Yeah. And world politics or yeah. what was going on. We were in their land, you know, just because the guy had five wives and you, you're never going to see any of them because they're completely covered up. It's none of our business. Yeah. You're over there scoring hashish. Well, I was, and, yeah. You know what I mean? And it wasn't a political thing. And we never found it important for us to even question it. Yeah. Well, I business, was, really. Right. I was so innocent when I went yeah. to Afghanistan, when uh, Haitula came. Um, it was our connection. Yeah. When yeah. he came into town and he, he saw me and he's like, oh, my God, you can't stay here in town. You need to come to the compound. So we mm. got to go to his compound, which was very rare. And then we called it, I think Ron wrote it in his book, Stand in Line of Stand. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. If we were holding another vehicle, then you just yes, waited. Wait. And most people right. waited in town or they went to Kabul or something. You know, they could do something else while they were waiting. But we were lucky enough to be there. So I got... I was running back and forth between the women and then standing on a big stool to smoke the big hookah with all the pressers. And, and, and I didn't have, I didn't think I was doing that. That was inappropriate at all. 
And, uh, and going back in with, I never really thought about why the women never came out of their really nice area. They had this really beautiful area. And uh, I would go back in there and, you know, I've cooked with people all over the world. None of them spoke a word of English, but, you know, a potato is a potato, a carrot's a carrot. Show me how you want to cut. I'll cut it. So, uh, and I was embroidering and uh, crocheting and they really liked that. So uh, luckily I got to be friends with the women and we, we went shopping one day and uh, that was the first time I had seen them in their full garb. And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> I couldn't tell who was who. And then we go. Only their feet showed. Yeah. Mm. And so we go to town and they, they give me two um, paper bags. And one of them has a couple, because we didn't speak the same language right. at all. None of them spoke a word of English. I didn't speak a word of Farsi, I guess, whatever they speak. And uh, they give me these two paper bags. And one's got a couple garbanzo beans in it. One's got a couple grains of rice to show me what, what I should get. So, you know, that's mm. my job. Go in and, and fill these bags up. And then we'll, so we'll meet you back. So then that all finished and I went back to the van and I turned around to look into town to well all the women looked exactly the same I'm like right. uh oh Whoa, where's my yeah. girlfriends <laughs> and, and so I thought oh gosh now I'm gonna have to just be a scene because I was totally in not at all covered right. and you had a scarf well Hytula had given me a, a, a really beautiful colorful scarf over my hair but I didn't know it was from over my hair I was tying it around my blade <laughs> around my neck right. and, you know, beautiful so anyway i was over there and i thought what well, so i'm like hey <laughs> and then next thing i know these five dark figures emerge from the crowd and mm. those were my girlfriends and once we got in the back of the van we shut all the curtains and they could take their thing off <laughs> um, and we we would talk and it was so funny because they would talk to me in their language. I would talk to them in my language, even though we didn't know what each other was saying, we'd laugh and <laughs> yeah, they were wonderful. And I had no idea those were all his wives. I thought one of them was his wife and she had her sisters living there and there was, there was a sisters. Right. And then I find out they're all his wives and all his kids. So anyway, it's interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Especially for a young woman who's 21 years old and coming from the West, like, you know, what what an education it is to to get to live to have a lived experience there. It's it's pretty yeah. beautiful, really. Yeah, it is. When we it was a good time. It was a good yeah. time when we pulled into Iran, to, and we had to drive all the way through Iran, which is a huge country in the desert. There wasn't roads or signs or anything either. You were really just driving in the desert, and. Uh, we saw this guy hitchhiking right when we first pulled in and we're all, oh my God, where, you know, it's like, there's nothing behind us. There's nothing in front of us. There's nothing on either side. Where's this guy going? So we picked him up. Well, it turns out he's going right to the, the, he ran? Mashad. Mashad, mm. right on the border of Afghanistan. So now this guy's going to be with us for days. So I, I did all the cooking and everything in the car. I had brought uh, army footlockers full of food. And so he slept underneath our van and we slept in it because there was only room for two. It was a double cab. So it's small sleeping area. And uh, we fed him breakfast, lunch and dinner. And then we drove him and we dropped him off at his house. His family flipped out. They were so happy. <laughs> they could not believe that we would be gracious enough to take him in and feed him and take care of him and get drop him off. They forced us to stay there. Uh, not, you know, not forced us, but they were like, right. you, you have to. And we didn't want to be disrespectful, but they wanted us to stay there. They wanted to give us tours of the town and the underground. And yeah, it was pretty amazing. They played instruments and we all 
danced and it was really really fun so that was it was the people everywhere were so, so nice. nice everywhere yeah Went through turkey and iran and afghanistan and india you were kind of an anomaly it was, you know it was amazing yeah you know how how fun it was and another thing was we were safe yeah you know, we could sleep out in the desert under our van uh, under our van in our van and never have to worry about you know getting robbed or anything like that and the people that you ran into always wanted you to come to their house and visit i mean they were you know have you know, tea drank yeah, so much whatever tea. they were just really really nice <laughs> yeah really even nice. the guys that they had these little um they were in afghanistan they had uh tolls on the road and this guy would stand there he was in like this phone booth building with the bar across the road and you stopped and you paid him whatever 25 afghanis or something but they all had hashish pipes and hash in their little cubicle mm. and they'd always invite you in to smoke the hash and have tea and these were just the guards but it was that's the way it was it was like that everywhere and everybody you know in kabul all the shop owners they all want to have tea have tea have tea and talk and you know they're curious about you and what was going on and um you know i can't remember any happening that Negative wasn't that people were so um, so nice inviting you know to you to come to their house and uh, feed you and uh, you know it just interchanged uh, from your world to theirs and that's the way it was it was you know there wasn't any you know there wasn't any threat you weren't ever felt threat oh you you always felt safe you it's never. fascinating fascinating to think that you know we're always told to be afraid. We're always told about fear. We're always kind of conditioned to like be questioning these other people. But when you hear stories about people traveling to distant places and how warm and welcoming the people are, and you know, it, it seems interesting that sort of relationship comes from LSD too. Like you, you know, when you're turned on or when you have an experience, you begin to see a lot of love out there. And sometimes it maybe that's something that lsd and traveling do similar is that they show you the truth like hey you don't and, and one of the truths they show you is you don't really need to be afraid you know fear is the one thing that kind of causes a lot of problems out there yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Kind of, it's constricting it is and it's your muscles constricts yeah. your mind yeah and i yeah i have to say nowadays i don't uh you know i would feel fine walking through detroit walking through wherever and now it it really is different now. Mm. I hitchhiked from Detroit to San mm. Francisco and back twice. Wow. And um, well, because the plane fare, we could get two kilos of weed for what one plane fare cost. So we figured <laughs> we could get six more kilos of weed rather than do the plane. And so that was fine with us. And uh, it was adventurous, but no, I, I wouldn't recommend that to anyone now because it's just different. Back in that day, the truck driver, people were more friendly. The truck drivers mm -hmm. were all good old boys. And, you know, now you, do, you don't really know. And there's just so much more turmoil and mm -hmm. uh, so many people are more disturbed that I wouldn't recommend anyone to just stick their thumb out and go hitchhike anywhere. Mm -hmm. it, it's would be too scary to get in a stranger's car, mm. but I still pick up hitchhikers. Uh, he doesn't really like me to, but being a hitchhiker, I know how nice it is to get a ride. <laughs> yeah. You know, in Af you, you talk about in Afghanistan, there was a time when 
like obviously there's some sort of moral or cultural codes that when they're broken, people get upset. And you talk a little bit about your brother being offered some hashish and then he offers a better bit of hashish back. Like, why is that a bad code to break? Is that disrespectful to, to do that? Or is that? What, yeah. Well, because cool? well, one thing is there were some pieces of hashish that, you know, hash didn't come in <clears throat> large quantities and they didn't have warehouses full of pressed patties. It was always pressed to order. Okay. So that's why we had to wait. Was right. you know, people would come in with different orders and they would have to press it up while the people waited. So um so what the deal was the hash came in usually little uh, muslin bags, you know, a couple of kilos at a time. And you realize this is the pollen from hundreds and hundreds of plants. Mm. Right. So no matter how much hash they had growing, they still only managed to have 10 kilos of the same kind. Well, there were a few times where there was something really special. And we knew what it was. I mean, we brought back what we called Primo. And it was basically the same kind of uh, quality. And that's what everybody loves when they old timers talk about the hash. It's the Primo they're talking about. Mm. It's the hand-pressed patties. And um, it was a, a quality that was, you know, it was great but it wasn't the special, special quality. And you could never get any amounts of that kind of hash. You might get an ounce mm -hmm. or a piece like that. Well, my brother, he was a little pompous, he threw that piece down to the guy saying, well, I want this. Well, we knew that he can't get that. Oh, no one I see. So the, the guy really wanted to kill him. Wow. Died after he got us down, he said, that guy wanted to kill you. And, you know, we were lucky to get out of that alley and back on the street. And Ron wasn't even supposed to be yeah, with them. They had right. That's one of their many accidentally meetings from all over the world. And he, he just went with them to just go with them. Yeah, yeah I was there. Yeah, yeah. so he could have got sucked into something. Really that bad. was pretty bad. But that's why that happened that way, that, you know, those special pieces, uh, there was a, there were few and far between. And um, you you could never get even a kilo or something. And they perceived it as being disrespectful, right? Of, you know. Yeah. Like how did what do you get? Who are you to bring this to my house? I get it. Like. Yeah. 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 <laughs> this is what I've got. Yeah. Not. Yeah. Yeah. Not throw me down a piece of hash and say, "Well, this is what I want." You're yeah. Not eat that. Yeah. Okay, that makes that's that put some color behind it there. Yeah, that would scared the bejesus out of me. I, I can't imagine like just being in Afghanistan and then running into my sister. Hey, what are you doing here? You know, yeah. <laughs> you just run into your brother all there. All I ran to my brother all over the world. It's weird how it happened, but um, I did. I, several, several times in other foreign countries, Jamaica, um, um, this little island, uh, Karakou mm -hmm. in Afghanistan. You know, I'd just be on the street, walking down the street, and I'd see him across the street, standing on the corner. He gets around too. And uh, and I, we never knew what each other was doing. People, the the different guys that smuggled, they it wasn't common knowledge what we were doing. Need to know basis. Yeah, yeah. So we would just all of a sudden ships. be in Laguna, and then would disappear for six months. And that's just the way it was. So I never knew what he was doing any more than he knew what I was doing. So it was real strange to run into him in the far corners of the world um, just by accident. 
Karma. You know, yeah. One one of a. I had to set the book down a while while I was reading one then a bunch of times for people listening right now. This is I just want to make sure that we talk about the actual title of this book. People can see it. Brotherhood Hashish: The Story of Ronnie Bevan. And you you're gonna it's amazing. You'll put it down. You'll pick it up. You'll highlight it. But there was this one scene that really mesmerized me, like a lot of them did. This, this is where you decided to put the camper on the Black Sea. And then you talk about going to the upper deck and going to this all, you know, hardwood room and sitting down and eating dinners with the captain of the ship. I was curious, like, what was that like? Like, what, what kind of stories did you talk to about the captain of that ship while on that vessel? Like, that just seems like a fascinating time. Well, it was, and um, it was a wonderful trip. I'll never forget it. It was three days, and there was only like four cabins up with the captain's cabin on the top floor. It was this small floor, and I don't really know what we talked about, but, you know, we met him. He was always yeah. in uniform and everything, and he served us this wonderful food, and it was just part of our deal from having that first-class cabin. Yeah. And, um, you know, that was just an amazing vacation, kind of in the middle of everything. You know, it was I had heard the boat went from Istanbul to Trabzon, mm -hmm. which cut off a big chunk out of Turkey. Three quarters, you said. And uh, yeah, and so uh, we went down and got the tickets, and um, we had no idea about the experience, but it just turned out to be, you know, wonderful. It was, what can you say? That you'll never forget it. It's, it was something real special in our life. Yeah, it's. I just imagine a young man that is, you know, turning on the world's going to Afghanistan to get some hashish and you're sitting in this first class boat ride on some, I don't know. It just seems so magical to me. And I think, you know, shortly after that story, you know, you're talking about you and a friend being on some treacherous mountain pass in the middle of the night where the code of the truck drivers is to run with your headlights off, but you can't see anything. So here you are trying to figure out where you are. And all of a sudden you, you, someone's brighting you, you bright them back a little bit. And next thing you know, a cops following you like that's, that sounds like just running from the cops in a Volkswagen bus on a mountain pass. Are you no, kidding? I me? don't know. I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> I really don't. But as soon as I as soon as it started, I didn't have a choice at that point. Once I started running, you know, that, that at that point, it was just cops and robbers. It was them trying to catch me. And uh, it was the middle of the night. And a little scary. You're in the middle of nowhere. There's no towns, no cities, no people. And so you wonder, well, if that cop pulls us over, exactly what would happen? So my basic thing was just outrun them, which I did. <laughs> it's fascinating to me i you know I, I had a volkswagen bus and i remember going up the grapevine doing like 25 miles an hour because as fast as i could go up there so right. i'm just imagining you in this vw bus rah, you know but like it's so crazy man it's so crazy what an amazing you're, and your friend's sleeping the whole time yeah he slept the whole time <laughs> <laughs> it was probably a couple hours a few hours it was beautiful though when when uh when dawn broke I couldn't see their lights anymore right, behind right. me. And uh, we were up this giant, uh, this slope down to the Caspian Sea. Mm. So we were really far away from it. But because of the slope of the mountains um, and where we were up on high, you could see way down into it. You could see the Caspian Sea. And that was really one of the most beautiful mornings, you know, in my life when I think about it. You have those certain times when everything just seems so perfect. Yeah. And uh, that was one of those times. It was 
really, really nice. Yeah. And is that the same time that you begin to saw, was that the same story where you saw Mount Ararat come into view? That sounds like a pretty beautiful time as well. No, that was a different time. That's uh, when we were in the Mercedes. Oh. And, um, <laughs> yeah. And, um, that was nasty going over that mountain. <clears throat> Wendy could tell you about it. They had to yeah. traverse that same mountain and they got caught in that snowstorm and they made them, they took them to a resort, yeah. a ski resort and kept yeah. them in while the blizzard passed. Yeah. We but, had our, our, we had chains on our tires, but as we were trying to get up the hill and it was so snowy, our Volkswagen just started sliding backwards and it was oh. a huge cliff and i remember jumping out of the car and uh the person i was with was like oh well thanks a lot and i said well there's no point both of us going over <laughs> <laughs> you should have jumped out too and just let yeah. the car go but, and, but that's a nasty pass yeah. it's very high and then you ride that ridge for quite a while before you start coming back down and uh at that time when we went up and then storm hit us uh, the road was disappearing yeah wow. it was just all becoming snow you're out there on this dirt road anyway and without traffic to show you where it was going yeah we realized we were kind of reaching yeah. the danger point there um somehow we got through it i wrote about the people at the bottom that one slope that went down and up and you could see down into it but there are people standing down there where they came from. God only Yeah, knows. people came to help us too, push our car back onto the and road. And they were down there to help the cars and the trucks get through this area that had uh, became so wet you couldn't, your tires wouldn't grab anymore. And wow. uh, like I said, where they came from, who even knows? There wasn't any villages around there. Yeah, it was really weird. But when they were there just up. to help the people and the, and the trucks to get them through, you know, so they could, otherwise they'd just be stuck out there. And uh, oh, you you died. Know, it was cold. It was really cold. And the resort was the ski resort. It was like going from being in heaven where you had just come from hail because you're either <laughs> freeze to death, fall over the edge of the cliff, nothing, no one. You're, you can't even see your hand in front of your face. It's so it was, I was raised in Michigan, so I was used to snow and <laughs> that was a whole different level of snow. <laughs> amazing yeah it, you know, it does it's it's so fascinating to me like the whole geography lesson and getting to see some of the landmarks you both of you have traveled to um i think it was i'll probably pronounce it wrong but mashad and you were talking about what it was like to imagine you know genghis khan or you know mark anthony or you know the greek soldiers coming through like you guys are traveling through spots that were you know developed in eight eight eighteen you know you the im the imam renza shrine and like just seeing these landmarks that are older than our country that had to be psychedelic in its own well way. of course it is and we never see anything like that yeah you know you so when you get into these countries that have thousands and thousand years of history you know i remember that one time getting out of the car and realizing that this was a past that all those people, Genghis Khan, Alexander the Great, yeah. all those people had traversed at one time. And just imagining the history that that one spot holds. Mm. You could feel it emanating. Yeah. You could feel the ancientness of it and the things that had happened. Now, in retrospect, I wish I would have had a metal detector. 
Mm. <laughs> but, <laughs> we never thought about anything like that. <laughs> what? So in some of those trips, were you, you were able to have some blue Levi's running through those areas and getting to experience that part of the world under right. the orange sunshine. Yeah, we had, we had, we took a LSD occasionally on those trips. Um, you know, it wasn't every week, right. but there were our times when we stopped, you know, we couldn't take it and drive. Maybe, right. Right. Know, in the day driving. So we would have to stop. And then we quite, had quite a few experiences. All of us did that went over there that, you know, smuggled and, um, uh, experience the country um you know had had experiences while we were there was was one of those times under like the hundred foot buddha yeah but we didn't take any psychedelics right. time. but we did see it before they blew the face off of it it was really quite beautiful um and uh, you, you'll have to say too that those muslims were just destroyers mm. and they're still that way today and in India, for instance, um, a lot of the Muslim shrines, and they still exist. And why do they exist? The Taj Mahal, uh, all those places, the Blue Mosque, is because the Muslims were the one that destroyed everything. Alexander the Great and the Hindus, they destroyed. So the Muslims would go through, they'd tear down a Hindu temple and they'd rebuild a mosque mm -hmm. right on the spot. And there's a lot of that reclamation going on today in India where they found these um hindu um uh, what's the word i'm looking for uh temples mm -hmm. they find the ruins of them behind the mosque mm -hmm. and now they're trying to restore them but that's why you're going to find that was the the muslims would go and they would destroy everything they would level everything where the other the hindus and alexander the great all those people they just left everything be of the um muslim temples like the Taj Mahal, blah, 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 they're still there. And that's why, because nobody, yeah. everybody else isn't like that, where they just destroy everything. And why they had to shoot the faces off those Buddhists, well, God only knows. And why the world <laughs> didn't, heritage or something, step in, we don't know. But anyway, <laughs> sad. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. Sitting here in Oahu and then getting to read parts of the book where you had the Maui group. You know, and for someone who's smoked tons of weed in my life and even in California, getting to hear names like Maui, Wowie and, and stuff like that, to get to understand where it came from, to get to understand about the pilgrimage from Laguna to Maui and some of the brotherhood that moved over there after the ranch kind of turned into a different aspect. Like after Johnny died, after Johnny died. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. It, that seemed like a pretty big turning point, right? Well, it was, and I got to say, it was maybe the happiest time of my life. <laughs> I, I mean, we were unrestricted. You right. never saw a policeman, ever. And um, even there was a trail that went down into the crater. Uh, pretty close. I lived in Kula. I was actually the highest one on the Aliakala crater out of our group. And I could get up there pretty quick, maybe in, in a, an hour. And they had one trail that went down into the crater and then came back out. Well, they've closed it. It's not there anymore. Mm -hmm. But that was a great back door because it, most people went up to sliding sands and went in that way and came out, you know, through the backside over the falls. And um, but we were just we could do anything we wanted. You know, we'd we'd drive around the island. We wanted to have some fun. We'd just drive around the island. Never saw a place. There just weren't any out there. 
they kind of hung out in Lahaina. They had a little group, and you know, if there was trouble, they'd come out. Sure. But in general, they it wasn't like it is now. Um, there was wasn't that many cars on the road, and the, you know, you didn't have to pay to get into the Haleakala. There was no gates. I could get up in the morning. I could just drive up and drive right to the top and watch the sunrise. Um, you know, it was different. It was really different in those days. And I've seen photos and I've read about it and I've looked on the, you know, the um, satellite, map. satellite maps yeah. and seen what they've done there. And I, it's a crazy. But, you know, I haven't been there in such a long time, 30 years or whatever it's been, that you can imagine. But it, to me, still, it's to have what we had turned into that, you know, it's two different worlds. It's not the same world. Well, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, that's true of anywhere, but shocking for Maui. Yeah. If I often think how much of a millionaire you would be if you would have bought those acres of land on the peninsula. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few missed opportunities there. Yeah. But it all happened for a reason, right? Like, it's. do, do you feel well, like, like... Yeah, go ahead. Maybe if we would have bought when they rounded it, everyone up, they would have found us. Yeah, of course. So, you know, I, I escaped that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you know, you just have to say, well, whatever happened was good for you because yeah. you came yeah. out unscathed and everything you did, that was pretty amazing. Yeah, super amazing. You know, it's I found that living in Hawaii has kind of changed my relationship to nature. And it's it's so interesting that, you know, your experience with psychedelics or LSD tuned, turned you on, I guess, and made you see the world in a different way. What, you know, then what, when you come to Hawaii and you start living this life out here and it's, it's kind of past the smuggling days a little bit, like you kind of have turned away from that a little bit, but what was it? Do you think that that chapter of your life kind of shaped who you are today? Like just being out here in Hawaii? Oh, I don't know. It certainly was a wonderful experience. It's a big piece of the puzzle. You know? And yeah. um, those were a couple of years of my life that were really a couple of the better years. Yeah. I don't think you ever forget the Hawaiian experience. Yeah. When you, yeah. When you go there, even if it's just to visit or whatever, you know, especially if you turn on there and it's just, there's just something really special about it. And you're really blessed to be able to actually live there. Yeah. You guys saw Jimi Hendrix in Maui at a free concert six weeks before he died. Like, what was that like? Oh, that was great. You know, um, <laughs> you know, that group was there filming that, that movie rainbow bridge. That ended mm. up, you know, not so, not so great. You know, our friends, <laughs> our friends made that. We can't. Yeah. It was our friends that were making that. Yeah. Movie. Nice. And, yeah, um, I know. It was pretty cool. You know, Jimmy played up on the crater. They wanted to film him playing. And that was a big part of their movie, their budget and everything. That, and probably what got them through it because they had mm -hmm. come into running out of money a couple of times. And, um, you know, they were able to gather more money because Hendrix came to play. Yeah. But, you know, it was awesome. It was, you know, it wasn't a lot different than a lot of other concerts because you have to realize that when the whole hippie movement began, there were love-ins and uh, there were free concerts in the mm -hmm. parks on Sundays. And we would go see bands, you know, Jefferson Airplane, whatever, all the San Francisco bands. And there was no security. They would just set up in a park somewhere. And you were right there 
you know, on near the stage and near everybody else. It yeah. was all just brotherhood and everybody loving everybody. There was never a fight or anything that, you know, went astray. Nothing. And uh, this happened quite often. So we were used to being close to these famous bands. Well, they'd come right out down in the audience when they were on their break and stuff. Nobody ever, mm. you know, gathered around them or bothered them. They were mm. always happy to talk to them or, yeah. hey, man, Mixing. great, you know. I play guitar too or whatever. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. like you can, they they mingled and it never was it never was a worry, you know. So the Hendrix experience was a wonderful thing that happened and it was in a beautiful place on the side of that crater. You could there you couldn't see any houses, you couldn't see anything. It was just the rolling hills of the crater down below, maybe three thousand feet. And um it was great to have that experience with, you know, there was hundreds of people there that had you know, everyone was invited. So it was great to see Jimi Hendrix, but it it wasn't any closer or more personal to us than it had been in the love-ins in California. Yeah. Because there was, there was so much. There was so many great bands. You went to see them all the time. You mingled with them. You kind of, you know, you could talk to them. It was never... Uh, I lived in San Francisco, and I used to soak clothing and make leather goods and I'd sell them on hate street. And a lot of times I wouldn't even get to the store where I was supposed to sell them all before they were already all sold. Cause people would see all these bags over my shoulder and they're like, Oh my God, you know, I got to have one of those. So I just basically deal them off before I even got there. But it, a lot of times it was band members and, uh, or they'd say, Oh, wow, you do this. Well, we're making this vest for Hendrix. Can you help, you know, us like that white vest he wore, the fringe was so heavy, it wouldn't stay. It kept falling. And so we'd had to put uh, drapery weights in the front of it to keep it um, <laughs> from, so it would set right. So it was just stuff like that. That was really fun and beating, all that kind of stuff. It was a great time. Yeah, what, it sounds amazing. You know, it's, when I think of, you know, getting to be in Hawaii and serve, you know, you have a quote in your book that says it feels awesome to it feels awesome to or smoking hash in Afghanistan is a lot like eating sushi in Japan. <laughs> I just thought to myself, like, that's such a beautiful quote. Like, yeah, like yeah. that's that's the Mecca. That's where it is. Right. That's yeah, that's true. What, that's fun. Yeah. Was it. So when, when you. What was it like to be, if I, if I just take it back to Afghanistan for a minute, you know, there's a story in there too, where you talk about making the, you get the, you get the crystals and then you make the oil out of that. What, what's the real difference between that oil and the hash? Like what, what's that? What's the real difference there? I mean, obviously the consistency. Well, it's, a, it's the strength. Okay. Um, and what it is, is the, uh, I don't know why it's stronger. Maybe it just is condensed or something. Mm -hmm. well, you have to use the medium but, to make um, the oil too. And the hash is just pure. Yeah, oil. yeah. You you use like alcohol to yeah. to get the Extract. to get the um, THC out of the crystals, and so that I think condenses them more than more than uh, make the just the hash concentrate the concentrate. Right. I never really liked that oil, though. I have to no, tell you, the hash. Why? When you have yeah. the hash, it's such a pure product. You have the you have the growing plant, 
you get the crystals off of it, you press up the patties and you smoke it. And that's just right. A natural, you know, natural. thing that's been done for thousands and oh, thousands yeah. of years. Oh yeah. You feel so anxious. You know, they figured it out and, and it does smoking the hashish gives you a different experience than any of the byproducts or marijuana or yeah. anything else. It kind of takes you and puts you in this place. Yeah. And if you let it, it will do it. And, you know, and that's why you like smoking it in the morning first thing, because there's nothing like starting out your day from the right place, right. the place where you see it all as one, where you feel it all as one. And you realize that, you know, this is what you are. This is what everything is. And from there, you can go on and make your day, do what you're going to do. I always say when this was my experience with the hash, hashish is when you smoke it, it's it, you really, it starts in your heart. It just opens up your heart and then it moves up and opens up your mind. And then it moves up. And I, I just use this as a metaphor, whatever, but it's like a, a lotus blossoming and another one blossoming out of that. And I've always said, I don't think you ever come down from smoking mm -hmm. hash. I think you just pick up where you left off because it doesn't ever it that it makes that time be here now and then when you move on to the next time you smoke it you just pick up pick up where you left off that's just my own personal i have nothing to to base that on except my own personal experiences but that's what's happened to me every single time so i have a pretty good but you you know um thing of it only the afghani hash does that to you yeah the other hashes from the other countries they don't have that and um we don't know exactly why but you know it's thousands of years old their tradition but another thing is too that the afghanis the afghan people in afghanistan that they were sufis mm. they really were muslims and the sufi religions do different things to have you have that experience and um you know i'm sure you heard of the twirling dervishes and mm -hmm. You know that people that they have different methods uh, um this group would smoke ash and then they would just start twirling until they fell down on the floor and then they would have that religious experience so they had different ways and one of them was smoking the hash that was one way they could get to this state in their mind where they could experience something beyond this level and uh, they had it down to a yeah, and they thousands have, of years. Right. They knew the Afghani they hash doing. was pure. The you know there was uh, gum Arabic and some of the hash from other countries. There was opium and some of the mm -hmm. Nepalese and in in India, I don't. They put cow poop in everything. So it's just you know that's just part of the ingredient. I mean, a lot of times it's ash, but still you know and the, it's, and there's the something added. Didn't, added. didn't press it up. They had they would press it into blocks. Mm -hmm. and it's not the same. No. Something happens in that kneading it's process. The, it's the twisting. Yeah, the it's twisting the and, the, and, and you, something happens yeah. to it in that process that changes uh, the changes the product where it when you smoke it, it produces that certain effect. And, uh, you know, I mean, I'll get a lot of negativity from this from all the new modern people and everything. But all those oils and those super hashes and all those things, you have to use equipment to smoke. You mm -hmm. have to use burners and bubble it up and five levels of uh, screens and stuff like that. A lot like of paraphernalia. It doesn't, it doesn't do it to you. Yeah. More stronger isn't better. 
Yeah. And uh, I know a lot of people like to smoke it for the rush and the taste and all that, but that is really a perversion on the original hashish. Mm. It's not hashish. No, not it's, at all. It's something else. Yeah. And that's what's real popular today. And mainly because the process of pressing the hash has been lost. There are very few people that know how to do it. Me being one of them. Yeah. I'm kind of famous for it. Yeah. But um, something happens. We don't know what it is. Something happens in the process. You know, like pulling taffy. You know how you keep pulling it and then you end mm -hmm. up with the same thing with the hash. You keep pressing it, heating it up, pressing it more, heating it up, pressing it more. And eventually you come out with something that's quite different than anything else. And that's the hash we brought back. We call it Primo. And uh, it got its own name, Primo, but that's what it's called. And um, and it's just different that, you know, and these people that I'm not against them with their super strengths and everything, but I tried it before. And yeah, we found a friend of ours. Of, yeah. Almost made me pass out and gave me a buzz. But yeah, it's it's not the same. Those. Um, what do they call them? Um, concentrate aren't really hashed or something else. There's something else. Kind of like that oil used to me. Mm -hmm. which was really kind of too strong you yeah know, it, it didn't really have its place so, you know it's a novelty and people love it and they some people hey you fucked up or what man? Yeah. <laughs> oh, but that's, that's not our goal that wasn't our goal <laughs> yeah that's what you see today and like i said i'll probably get people the young people going hey well you know you don't know what he's fucking talking about yeah you know, that. Well, we finally had a friend but, of ours who makes it and we knew he was making it out of good stuff, but we still had refused, you know, the offer to to smoke some with him. And he had to get, like he said, all the screens and the power. And uh, we finally one day he was just bugging us and bugging us. And he said, you know, you really you, you can't knock it. We said, we're not knocking it. Enjoy yourself. You know, we just don't want to partake. And he finally he talked us into it. And we said, all right, we'll take we'll try it because we knew it was he made it and it was from his stuff so we tried it and we both were like oh my god it left the worst taste in your mouth and mm. gave you this rush which yeah, i guess rush. is the thing i'm not sure and we had to like go outside and we were kind of dizzy and we had to go eat to just you know get everything straightened back out and even then we're like oh we're never doing that again so, well through the years we've had different people oh hey i made this you better try it it's always the same you know, it's it's never going to be what Primo is. It's never going to have the history and the, what do you want to call it, time proven, mm. you know, that, that you're going to get from the hand-pressed Afghan. It's the love. It's mm. the with the love, knowing it's so good. We've, you know, well, we've had different experiences. We're involved in, you know, making hash and selling it during the days when, since 97, once it was legal but not legal, and we were involved with several dispensaries. And we kind of had it going. They were buying uh, hash from us quite often. And they wanted to start having seminars and, you know, have uh, on a Saturday, have a thing where we would come in and talk about the hash and people could smoke it. And we were Do just getting, demo. getting into things like that. And then that's when they made it legal. And then those people, they just, you know, walked away from us. We couldn't deal with them anymore because we didn't have the license. Yeah, we didn't have the millions of dollars so, to get the license and didn't want to, we didn't want to get involved with, well, the man. So it's yeah. kind of, you know, it's kind of been pushed aside or lost or whatever. But I still think there's a, a good place in the market for that. 
And you know, it's a basic price because you're not taking these all these concentrates that, where they have a lot of money of marijuana in the concentration. So they're expensive. No, you can pay $90 for a gram or something or a half. Yeah. A gram. And uh, yeah, it is kind of ridiculous. Where we were selling our grams, they had them for sale for $10. Wow. And um, they would tell us, they uh, we had several dispensers we were dealing with, but they would say, they said, well, you know who buys your hash? Or they said, who's that? They said, the old guys. <laughs> <laughs> what it is, these young guys, they don't know what it is. And so they were really pushing us to come in and educate the public. But that's when it changed and we were just locked out. Yeah. They closed their doors and it was kind of over for us. Right. Our first book signing for Brotherhood Hashish, we had rented a big place, uh, a music place, but it was a really nice place with a kitchen and everything and uh, had a lot of couches and everything sitting around. And we had set up two little areas with two little water pipes and you, you could smoke as much hash as you wanted. Yeah. Oh, we've done that at several yeah, of we've our, done that our private talks where private we, places. Yeah, where we do give lectures and things like that. And we always have a free hash. You can smoke as much as you want. But the thing is, it gets you so high. Right. That's an you easy thing to one. do. Totally. Take one hit. In fact, I can only remember at this one party, this one girl came back for second. And uh, she took some big tokes again and she says, I have a high tolerance. But she was the only one, everybody else, and, yeah. you know, so. Everybody's, I'm good. It didn't take much <laughs> to, you know, put the, and then that, that would last for several hours. So it's easy to say smoke as much as you want because you, it's not that much. To yeah. Get, to will. get really, I, I always say it's the best bang for your buck. Yeah. And we're still kind of wishing that we could educate the world on the hand-pressed Afghan and what it does and everything. But we just haven't had that opportunity. We've had our feelers out and, uh, you know, we've got some people that have license and stuff, but they're just not interested in, in really going there. You know, yeah. they don't feel they have a need for it. And uh, so we're still kind of, you know, hoping that someone will come along that wants to promote it. Someone with some licenses where, you know, we could get in there and make a make a bunch of it and actually put it on the market. Yeah, because for us to get a license to to make it and sell it it would be millions yeah, of dollars for much. us it'd be too it, we we don't have that and you're you're under the scrutiny of you know cameras in your house and mm. it's just it's so ridiculous that we're just like yeah okay we'll pass on that. yeah but i think it might come around eventually well i i don't see i think without a doubt without 100 without a doubt it's coming back around and i think you bring up an incredible point that you know, anybody can go out and get blasted on some shatter or some sort of new analog. Like anybody can do that, but you're losing the magic. You when you lose the yeah. story, you lose the transformation. Like the, the story, like the same reason that the Brotherhood was was the had the power of enlightenment is they had a story, they had a vision, and they had a they had something that they were trying to do to make the world better. A little bit of shatter from some Fortune 500 company doesn't care about your transformation. They care about making money, and that shows in the product because the product, you know, whether it's whether it's orange sunshines, even though orange sunshines can be blue Levi's, I didn't know that. Thank you for sharing that with me. You know, uh, you know, or it's this, it's the hash that's made in a certain way. Like there's reasons and intention. More importantly, there's intention behind things that cause transformation in people. And I think that's coming back around. I, when we get off here, I'll, 
I'll tell you about some things that I think may be beneficial for that. But, you know, I, it's fascinating to me because I, I do think that we have lost our way, you know, in, in just rereading the book. I mean, re coming back and reading the book, Brotherhood Hashish, it brings back the ideas of what the brotherhood was trying to do. And I see the psychedelic renaissance beginning to play another wave or beginning the next track is getting ready to play. We're flipping the tape back over, putting inside two over here. But what the people are currently missing is the backstory. They need to talk to the people that kind of were in the first wave, that understood the love, that understood the message and understood the shared sacrifice. And I think that that's what you guys provide. I think that the book is a, I think that this first book, because it seems to me like Wendy's probably got five books in her. And I think Ronnie's probably got another four in him. And I, <laughs> I think that these stories, you know what I mean? I think it's the stories that help people understand not only where they came from and what's important, but what the future looks like. And when we start thinking about the ruins in Turkey, when you start thinking about the road trips that were made, the pilgrimages that were made to Afghanistan, I start thinking about, you know, the, the mythology of it. Like I think back to the Greek myths of the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Greeks telling stories and, you know, the, uh, the different sorts of rites of passage that happen. And I, th I think that's happening now. And I know I'm kind of rambling right there, but I, I, no, I, really, no, I, I agree totally. Okay. Yeah, we, okay. It's usually coming back around. And then one thing I tell everybody that they, they can't do the drug war again. Right. They didn't, it's over. That's it. That's they all are, there is to it. They already, had, already so admitted we You're won. seeing advances in uh, a lot of it is in psychology and right. things like that. Because why? Therapy. Because doctors yeah. and scientists and stuff, they have credibility. Just for instance, we are of such value. I mean, if you really want to know about the psychedelic experience, who knows better than us? Who's taken LSD a hundred times, gone out and laid down in nature over and over and had these transcendental experiences? Well, we're the ones. But no one's going to talk to us because we don't have a PhD. And they're just not interested. <laughs> and you find that all over. And the PhDs, on one hand, because they're able to make this happen because of their credibility, they can rent a, a place in uh, Jamaica and they can bring people in that have, uh, you know, uh, mental problems. I'm just, you know, not big ones, but whatever, anxieties and Trauma. things. And they can give them doses of uh, mushrooms or whatever they happen to have and guide them through an experience that should make their life cha change and be better. But the problem is that these these doctors, they the don't guides. have the experience. They don't know how. They to, don't really know yeah. what's in there and how it all works. So they're there, you know, blind leading the blind, and they're actually um, causing, you know, they're they're opening it up where you see more and more of these retreats. You see them in Belize and Jamaica mm -hmm. and Holland, and they're all over. But they're still, we don't feel they're being led properly for a spiritual uh, right. um, understanding. They're mainly dealing with people that have some small um, mental problem if you want to call it that that they're addressing and they're hoping to become a better person through the experiences but just for instance we saw one in jamaica we watched these group of people go down there and they was like six of them and they uh they took these people they had them there for a few days go to the beach loosen them up you know they're in nature they're in a, a, a different environment 
so they're not familiar, you know, because well, sure. one thing is if you're in a familiar environment, like if you take LSD in your house, there's so many things that can be distracted. But if you go out into Palm Springs in the desert, there's nothing there Anywhere to distract you. So you're wide open for your consciousness to expand and experience what's inside of you. But these people that we watched their thing, there was like five or six of them, and they each had a guide. And they were all laid out on these tables inside one room, and then the guides were kept talking to them. They kept oh, and, and you, touching them. Yeah, uh, yeah it's yeah, okay. Are you, are you okay now? now? We're you know, like, oh, my God, now? get away you from me. And what's going on is that you, you really, the guide uh, is there when you don't realize it. You know, the guide's there understanding what you're going through, there but just no let guide. it all happen. Yeah. The only time the guide would ever come out to to get in involved in your experience would be if it wasn't going right. Yeah, if you started That's getting right. up and being confused, then they can bring yeah, you back. That point, but as far you, you got to go within. And if somebody's touching you and talking to you, you're not going within. You're They are distracting you from what could be the best thing that ever happened to you. But what's coming from this is general acceptance right mm -hmm. you know yeah. where now you've got ayahuasca groups around the country that are legal you still have the peyote indians are still legal with their peyote um you know in arizona and um a lot of the uh the mushroom psilocybin psilocybin yeah the, the, a lot of them <laughs> have access to that now uh the doctors and Great. scientists and whatever experimental they can get it. So it's opening up. And what I see coming of it is eventually it'll get to a point where some people realize, hey, well, there's something more here than just therapy. You know, mm -hmm. there's actually something here that can give people the religious experience. And I think at that point, you're going to see some of these places either expanding or changing or more places, you know, um, coming up. Or you could actually go there because you want to see more of the metaphysical realms and what's inside of you. You're not going there for therapy. So it's all moving forward, like you said, and I see right. it coming. It's just going to take a little while longer, and, you know, before it's accepted. But you're seeing a lot of people talking about the psychedelic experience and religion and what it's done to them and what it's done to other people and, um, it's becoming more known and more popular. So I think, you know, it won't be long before people break through and they actually have a place where you can come and have, you know, the psychedelic experience for your religious um, advancement rather than, you know, for therapy. Yeah. And your, platforms like yours are essential to get this message back out of, of going within. So you're, you're you're doing a really great thing to just let people be educated by some people that know and because we're dying off uh, carol and i were just talking the other day about our projects and stuff and we were joking that we really have a deadline <laughs> <laughs> Deadline. that's what we're having to like okay we're not going to finish that so we're going to let that go let's try to get something done here so it uh it's it's great that you've provided a platform to educate people on what it really was about and it still is about that so it's it's important yeah it yeah first off thank you i mean i'm 
I feel like I'm getting to sit at the feet of the masters and learn, you know, yeah. I've, I've, it's, it's, and, and those stories need to be shared. You know, you're right. Like there is, we're all facing different generations have different roles, they say. And it seems to me that your guy's role has gone from, from, from people who have done it to becoming the teachers now, you know, and writing these books. That's why it's important when you should be knocking these books out and Ronnie, you should have more books coming out because these are the teachings that people are going to read. These, this is, this is the psychedelic prayers of the next generation. You know what I mean? When people can read that, they're going to have the similar experience that you had when you got those papers from Johnny. Like it's, it's the involvement of, it. and like that, I think that that's your, one of your guys roles is, is like, look, now it's time to pass on that information so that the dream can continue. And I, I do think you're right when it comes to the idea of, these centers being being operated in a way. In some ways, the, a lot of these places in Costa Rica and whatnot are like the McDonald's of transformation. You go there, get your ayahuasca and a Big Mac and a Dr Pepper, and you're out of there. You know, yeah. it's you yeah. know, it's not really about seeing the you know seeing all things manifest from one source. You know, it's it's not that experience in the same way. And yeah, I, I do love the idea of people that have had the experience of turning on other people being pinned down after five doses of 333 milligrams. Like that's a whole nother experience, you know, than being set up in the Hyatt in a third world country and then going down and having some crazy breakfast. And, you know, and there's horror stories of people getting raped down there and, you know, people not having the purest form of intention. And just when you make it about the money you take away the spirituality out of it. And a lot of, I see a lot of that happening. And I, I right. do think a lot of other people are seeing what you guys see. And that's why I know that your guys role going forward is going to be probably bigger than you imagine. You know, and how could it not be if history is the best predictor of future behavior and you look at your guys history, how could this next phase not even be bigger? <laughs> yeah. Oh boy. Okay. <laughs> We're yeah. ready. I know you guys are. It's, it's 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 amazing to me to to get to even sit down here and listen to it. Yeah, I on some levels I think that the same way Time magazine and all these magazines tried to interfere with what the brotherhood was doing, so too is the medical industry trying to interfere with what the spiritual nature is this time. And what I mean by that is that the the magazines and the system tried to clamp down on the psychedelic movement and it seems to me in today's world they're they're almost weaponizing fragility like oh you guys got these mental problems you got to have this like they're saying you can only use it this way but that's not right. the right way you know what i mean does that kind of make yeah. sense yeah yeah that's what we're yeah. seeing we see that but we're yeah. hoping that that will evolve into something bigger and better for you know for man's consciousness you know, that that out of that, somewhere, somewhere along the line, they're going to give this guy a high dose of, of, of psilocybin. And all of a sudden, he's going to turn into light and the whole room's going to turn into light. And he's going to come back and say, God dang, you know what I just saw. And at that point, there may be some pursuance of that experience by other people. Yeah, that's what we keep thinking is going to happen. Accident, by yeah. Accident. They're fooling around right now, but it's just a matter of time. Yeah. yeah. Or uh, it's like a Trojan horse, right? Like they're just bringing this medicine. <laughs> they just freeze everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Rise. 
That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, we're, we're hoping. And when, when the younger generation, like we're around a lot of the younger kids and yeah. they're all like, yeah, we want to do it. How'd you do it? We want to do what you did. I don't think you can ever do mm. what we did because it's no. a different time. You can't, you know, like for sure, we were willing to sacrifice everything. We gave up, you know, moved out to places with no electricity and, you know, no plastic, no, no, no makeup, no nothing. And we were ready, willing and able to just jump into that. But the difference between that now is that we were getting a house, you know, for $95 a month, that same exact house rents for $2,500 a month. Well, that puts it completely out of someone's range to be mm -hmm. able to even if you're still just working as a waitress or a maid or whatever, you're working at the bank, you could function back then easily and go out on the weekends and then turn it into a full time uh, because you realize that you were needed. But um, that that's what they it's really hard for the younger generation. I always just tell them, well, you can start just by quit using plastic. Mm -hmm. Heard your house of all your plastic. Don't use plastic bags yeah, ever. They really need some guidance. Something yeah. has to come up for these younger kids. You know, there's so many of them that dressing like hippies, going to Grateful Dead concerts. You know what I mean? Doing doing all those things. But it's not the same as us. I, I think that they might be in a little shock if they realize that, well, when we were looked like you and what we were doing in the world, we weren't served in restaurants. Yeah, you know, um, the, uh, we couldn't go to Knott's Berry Farm. We couldn't go home. Our you parents home. wouldn't let us even to a house. funeral. You can go. You know, what I mean, uh, there was so much against us and what we were doing, but we believed so strongly in what we were doing that it was right that we were able to put up with all these things. Yeah, uh, not having long hair. You know, when we were first started out, no one had long hair. Now everybody has long. Right. So we, we, you know, we've destroyed that house of that they were trying to protect themselves in, but yeah, the kids, it's, it's really hard for, for them now at, to try to do anything. And the other thing that people don't realize we, now I'm just saying we, I don't mean everybody because everybody is an individual. And of course, you know, I don't know why everybody expects, you know, like, Oh yeah, well I knew a hippie and he got drunk. Oh, well, that's it then. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, they, they don't realize, though, that we did not drink alcohol. We did not smoke cigarettes. We ate a pure diet. You know, uh, we tried to get to to shun any preservatives or and we were very organic and made our own clothes and, you know, stuck to the cotton and got away from the polyester and all natural. that kind of stuff. Everyone all natural. natural. And if you we were willing to to do that and go there and, and, you know, yeah, we made mistakes and stuff. We were, for one thing, we were children yeah, we're and good. we were just trying to figure it out from a point that we never had. There were no health food stores. There, you know, there were diabetic stores. That was the closest thing you could get to a health food store. If you wanted to buy a book about nutrition, you know, good luck or find a diet that was vegetarian. If you, I, want, you want to teach a yoga class in a church, you're not going to do that here. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. It's a yoga class. Yeah. yeah. No, I had to tell the lady when I, she was refusing me to rent the, the room in the church, the community room. And uh, she said, well, we have a religion. We don't do that here. I said, it's not a religion. I said, what really, it's just stretching and, and <laughs> exercising. And I said, it's a lot of breathing. I said, actually, you by just breathing are doing yoga. 
And there was such a silence. I think she was holding her breath. <laughs> She'd rather die. <laughs> but a lot of the things that are established now are rooted, you know, in us, like the health sure. bookstores. There weren't any. We had maybe the first one in our Mystic Arts. And, um, you know, like the same thing with the yoga and all that. And then, you know, we were searching too. Uh, a lot of these uh, yogis would come over from India or religious teachers and stuff, and they would gather, get followings, you know. But for some reason, you take those guys out of India, out of the mountains, and put them on the streets here, you know, the distraction changes too much. And there were big problems with uh, the gurus taking advantage yeah, sure. of, of the groups. And that gave the whole thing a bad taste. And then once really again, did. when you have so many people and then you just focus on one little thing, uh, you know, like, for instance, at, at, at Woodstock, 500,000 right. people and everybody's like, oh, yeah, everybody was so loaded. I'm like, do you know how much weed it would take to just give each person one joint? <laughs> like the trains. Yeah. Full. So it's like there really wasn't that. I mean, all everything, the weed and the acid, everything was gone in like the first hour. So <laughs> we had the rest of the three days. To but that kind of was the peak that showed how people can be together and get along. Yeah. You know, there yeah. were no bad incidents at all. Yeah. And it just that's just the way it was. You you know, you'd never see a fight or people yelling at each other or you know, mm -hmm. drunk and being funny because they didn't do that. You didn't do that. So you didn't have that that element. You were really, everybody was making a conscious, constant effort to be the person they really knew they could be, the productive, helpful, loving, giving person that that you would want people to remember you as. And everybody made that effort. Everybody had the same opportunity to become enlightened. You know, what they did with it, was their own karma also. And when Johnny died and the indictments came out and, you know, that was just a really hard time. And there were some people that resorted back to drinking and then all of a sudden Coke came on the scene. Mm. Um, I remember one of my friends, you know, cause I was so against it and they're like, oh, well it's the new LSD. And I'm like, well, mm. when was the last time you took LSD? Yeah. <laughs> it is not. And I don't need to try it to see that it's wrong. You know, the other thing, too, was people's houses were always open. You could go anywhere yeah. and spend the night at someone's house. I mean, you, if, you know, if you're like hitchhiking to Michigan or something, you know, maybe in the afternoon, some hippies would come by and pick you up and they'd take you home. Yeah, that happened. You, it happened every, there. yeah. And all of our friends, you know, that lived anywhere, you could go there anytime. You wanted to go spend the night, you had a friend in Hawaii, you just show up. You don't have to make arrangements. Hey, I'm coming and visiting for a week. You just show up and they, you know, our houses were always open. It was never a to problem. It was never a problem. And, uh, you know, a lot different than today. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I know it's more organized today and everything, but I'm just saying the love and that was extended to everybody and the camaraderie, camaraderie and um, just the general consciousness at that time was supportive and helpful and loving. Yeah. And we didn't have our parents. We didn't have anything to fall back on because we had already burned that bridge. <laughs> and uh, that was, that was kind of scary. It's really the first time in history that a whole generation of parents turned on a whole generation of their own children. 
which is a little bit shocking when you look back on it, because there were kids that we would have to take into the communes that had gotten these electric shock treatments. And, you know, cause they thought they dabbled in being a hippie and they're, bam, they're in there. And then we've got to deal with it because their parents won't take them back even after they destroyed them. So it was a lot to deal with for, for children. Luckily we had a lot to give and it's amazing how much human beings have to give once they open that floodgate. It's a never yeah. ending. It's a bottomless well of love that is available in every human being. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the, the hash, you know, when you have, when your system is running on elements that are pure, you tend to live a more pure lifestyle, but it's interesting to think about that from if you have pure LSD or if you have pure hash, what you manifest after that particular trip seems to be a little bit more pure, whether it's trying to live a more pure form of life. And then you look at some of these analog drugs like meth or, you know, some of these opiates that are happening today. And you look at the way society is running. You could argue that a society functions the way its drugs do. And if you have pure drugs, whether it's, you know, LSD, caffeine, coke, uh, chocolate, like coca, not, not the cocaine, but like coca, you know, all these different drugs that are pure that come from the earth. If we're running on that system, life seems to be a lot better. You oh, know, yeah. you know, right. And if, when you talk about being in Woodstock and being around this large group of people that were just trying to become the best versions of themselves, that seems like good advice for the generation coming up. If they want to, if they look at what you guys did and want to do it, maybe they can never go to Afghanistan and run hash, but they can try to live a pure lifestyle. Maybe it's the message of the brotherhood that they can carry on. Right. Right. Oh, that's what we're hoping. That's what we're hoping. Yeah, we are. We are. And there's some really great kids out there. Sure. Really talented artists, yeah. really talented musicians. And they're, they're doing really well. They're, they're like the little ember that's yeah. not going out. Yeah. You yeah. know, it's just the eternal ember and they're, they're really making, they're making a difference, but then a lot of them live at home. You know, I think this generation yeah. of parents decided they didn't want their kids to all become hippies. So they, they're going to support them and really almost make them codependent in order mm. to keep them from drifting off, which, which is fine. You know, I'm fine. That's wonderful. You can go home to your brother's wedding. We couldn't, Right. you know, you can go to your uncle's funeral. We couldn't, you know, your grandmother's funeral that we, we weren't welcome. You couldn't go. It was out of the question. And the, people don't realize how hardcore yeah, that tough love was was just ignorant, you know. Mm. And I, the other thing about drugs, I always call uh, LSD and mushrooms and, um, cellos, or, you know, peyote yeah. and stuff. That's yeah. sacrament. It's sacrament. Yeah. And point. I say hippies are actually the only people I knew that didn't take drugs. <laughs> Yeah. So for for being tagged drug addicts, we weren't at all. We were very, very anti-drugs and there was no coke or heroin or anything. I never even saw that stuff. So, you know. Yeah, I've never seen heroin. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's hard. Yeah. It's in some ways it's it's so necessary, though. What what do you think is the. Like if, if you were going to distill the message of the brotherhood down, down, what, what would it be? 
love everybody. Yeah, it's all about the love. It's love all... is something that exists. Yeah. It's a vibration. Yeah. And it does actually exist. Love, forgive, let go. Be here now actually is the is the main thing. Let go of all your past. It's the past. Don't worry about the future. If you draw all that energy that you spend, you know, victimizing yourself because mm -hmm. of your past or being scared about your future, you can bring all that energy into this moment right now. It's endless. You've yeah. got it. You have tapped into the well and, and not worry about those things. Just be here now. So that, that be here now thing is still very relevant. Yeah. Yeah. I, I once heard that depression is being trapped in the past and anxiety is being trapped in the future. There you, you know, go. Right. All you really have is, is this moment. And and yeah. we are, I know for myself, I get caught in the trap sometimes of like, Oh, I might not have enough in the future. I got to do this thing, you know, but it's such a trap because you can't control yeah. any of that. Right. No, no. can control any of it. And uh, what happens happens. And, um, I mean, you know, I, I hate to use this for an example, but we had the most wonderful relationship with our children. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden they come and they say they're dead. Well, that's over. You know, everything that was wonderful and great in your life is over. So at that point, you know, what do you turn to? And the only thing you can do is be here now and accept what happened and move on. It's all your own. You know, karma. and, and um, that's just kind of the way it is. Um, you know, they always say that you go along and then somehow something turns your mind to, to the religion. Mm -hmm. Something turns your mind to the energy and the pureness that is there. And what that is, we don't really know. You know, it just comes along. But that's what I see a biggie right now is they really need some centers of, of, of uh, uh, people aspiring to have some understanding about the metaphysical and what's really going on. And that's kind of what's missing today. And you have your pockets. You'll have your teachers here and there. But there isn't a big mass movement towards that. And that's what I see. The main thing is something needs to turn these people's minds towards something that's beyond their mind. And there's massive groups of people out there ready for that. You know, they, they think, Oh, you know, like we have this one young friend, 22 years old, and we were talking to him. And he said, what does it matter? He said, they're going to just blow the earth up anyway. And that really was his thing as a 22 year old was, it, it, he didn't have a lot of mo motivation to move forward in anything, trying to live his life and do the best he can. But his bottom line is that the powers to be are just going to blow everything up and nothing's going to be here anyway. And uh, you see that, uh, you know, emerged everywhere and everywhere things are bad. And that's not just our country. That's a, that's a lot of different places. But um, somehow some movement has to come along again, like LSD to turn massive amounts of people towards the inside, you know, towards their real consciousness and, and really have a desire to learn about what's really going on here other than us living in this illusion or just da-di-da, -da, you know, we're going on in our day and that's, then you die. And, you know, and well, what's come of that? What, what have you made from your life? What advancement have you done for the world and for your own spirituality? great point you know i i i th and i think it's happening you know i i see people turning away from the machine i 
I see people walking away from, you know, jobs where they're promised security in order to become the best version of themselves. And like this is where I think it gets back to to different generations. Like, you know, I don't really believe in coincidences. And I think the fact that your story, the reason your story is coming out now is because kids in their 20s do need to see that it's possible. They do need to see that you can create something out of nothing if you're willing to believe in yourself and if you're willing to have the courage to stand up for what you think is right, then you can become a better, you can become the best version of yourself. And when you yeah. do that, you're, that's your gift to the world, right? Like, look, I did it. I became the best version of myself. And I'm not comparing myself to them or them, but it's me, you know? It's, and I think that's what your guy's story does. It's the it's individual person. You have to do it. When, well, that's a weird turn, yeah. turn, turn on the world one person at a time. So you, yeah. you know what may come about. Now, you know, that when Buddha was alive and Jesus was alive, that there was no um, uh, writing. There was no language, nothing was right. written down. All these stories about Buddha said and Jesus said, it happened, uh, the people wrote it a hundred years later, how right. they have any idea what Buddha right. said. What did you have said. for dinner last Thursday? But what, <laughs> what could be very common is in a hundred years from now, somebody's gonna pick this story up and they're gonna make a religion out of the brotherhood and the people involved. That funny. Um, I wanted to, yeah. uh, one thing I think is uh, interesting, it's just a side note, but yeah. uh, there's always, you know, I'm always into the be here now and mm -hmm. to, to pull all that energy and into the present moment. And the present moment is called present because it's a gift. Mm. It's a present and it's a gift for you to cherish each moment. And I just love that, that it's called the present. Yeah. <laughs> and you're right about, you know, trying to set up the future or, you know, uh, dwelling on the past and everything yeah. that, you know, that stuff's all useless now. The only thing that's of use is this very moment, what you're doing and how you're interacting with the world. And mm -hmm. uh, you'll find if you center yourself on that point rather than what's going to happen tomorrow or what happened yesterday, that, um, your life gets better, you know, it gets revealing. Mm -hmm. You start seeing more because you're not so, your mind isn't so far off in the future, busy with those thoughts or from maybe bad experiences or something that happened in the past. And mm -hmm. uh, it, it just gives you the opportunity to open up and you have no control over any of it anyway. What happens to you tomorrow? And that's kind of what I was bringing up with our boys was life was going along just great. And all of a sudden one day it's over. And that happens to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And, um, you know, so the only thing you really can do is try to be present in this moment. And as things come up, deal with them. Do the best and you can. after that, let it go. Be as loving and giving and, you know, give that homeless sound person your leftovers or, you know, whatever you can do and to, to help anybody at any time is... Yeah, and even little things Good. make a difference. And yeah. they also make a difference in yourself. If you go out of your way to do something kind towards someone, it actually changes you. It changes your mm -hmm. demeanor. It changes the world and made it a better world. And that's really where our focus should be is on helping others because that's where your happiness comes from. Right. That's what I was going to say yeah. that from the studying Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, uh, for all these years, 
a few things we've learned is, um, well, a lot of things, but uh, what was I going to say? Oh, God, I lost my thought. Tibetan uh, Buddhism and helping others. Oh, yeah. Okay, right. Oh, thank you so much. So they, they have a saying that thinking of yourself brings suffering and thinking of others brings happiness. And that's so true. And they have a real thing of rejoicing in other people's like uh, success. So if they play a game and you're so happy for the person that won. You don't think, oh man, I, you know, I, I, I'm fiercely competitive, but I'm also very happy when we play dominoes and stuff. And I always right. say it's an opportunity to practice, you know, good sportsmanship and being rejoicing in someone else's uh, thing. And when we were in the village where uh, our son was reborn, he's a little Tibetan refugee village in nor way North India. And they had a little pool hall there. Little snooker snooker table or so, oh, snooker table. So of course we come in and we're like, hey, let's have a contest, you know. And then we got, <laughs> we got prizes for every every single person got either pair of socks, t-shirt, something, food. Um, and then the the winner of got a pool cue from here. We took, and so that was a really big deal. We thought yeah. it didn't mean a thing to them, but um, they it, the contest went from morning all the way through the night and finally the nine o'clock till past midnight. Yeah, the nine in the morning till past midnight. And I uh I left our house and went, you know, they came and told me, hey, they're coming up to the end, you know, because I wanted to see it. And so I went in and watched the two last players, they were all Tibetan, uh play. And it I'll never forget the moment because I couldn't tell who won. <laughs> they were both so happy for each other. It was like that in all the games, too. Yeah, it was like that in all the. We any, filmed it. Yeah, we filmed it, and it and was watching so, the film. You can't tell who won. You can't never tell. They were both so happy to have been able to play the game, and the winner was the winner. Yeah, and they were so and rejoiced it, in that. And what a lesson! Yeah. To to okay, I still got some work to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so there's little things you can do in your daily life that actually will change your life and make you a better person. And, and actually, um, you reap the benefits from it also. You know, that that it just mindset, you know, when, um, you know, when some bad happens, some car jumps out in front of you or something, instead of getting upset with it, you know, you just kind of let it go. And uh, when you come across someone that maybe needs advice or, or help or even uh, physical help. If you're able to reach out to them, it changes you as a person. And it really does. It, those things, um, they change your mind. You know, they make you peaceful. Uh, you know, and these things radiate and people yeah. see it in you and then it spreads. And that's the only way back is through kindness. and help. There is no other way. Yeah, that's really well said. It when I sometimes I think of myself as a pattern or my life as a pattern, and you can really understand the frequency of that pattern if you use LSD or you use some of these transformative sacraments in a way that can help you see yourself in a new pattern, and that pattern can, can become contagious, right? Because if you if you have a pattern of kindness, all of a sudden that that what you put out radiates back to you. And you can see it sometimes. You can see it in your life when you change the way you interact with people. If you're, I've, I've spent a big part of my life being an asshole sometimes. When I look back, I have to laugh, you know, and I'm like, what a dummy I was. I was, I was bringing it all on myself, just doing yeah. what I was doing. 
you know, but you, sometimes I think you have to go through that in order learn. to see that pattern. Yeah, yeah. right. You have to work, you have to work it out. We're working out so much in this lifetime. And especially if you've chosen a conscious life, you, you're then all of a sudden now it's just a huge burden of responsibility to continue on this path of, you know, not to be kind and loving and everything. And that's, uh, yeah, you have to work it into your life where that's natural. That's where your mind goes. That's where things are. And you start by one thing yeah one thing to help someone you'll see it and then you realize it and you go from there and everyone can see like you know the guys on the phone at the stop sign and you're honking at him you know what the fuck what do you, you know what are you doing <laughs> yeah. and you then you you know you can tell from right there that that's not good well we that's always not good for you we always it, feel sorry for them because now they have created karma with all those people that they made wait and my thing with karma is, of course, we come in with all our karma and the kind of bummer is you never know when it's going to ripen. So it can just <laughs> blindside you at any moment. But like with like with our boys or whatever. And uh, my thing is, you know, realize it's your karma. Realize that there is no fault. It's all your own fault. It's mm -hmm. your karma. If you were involved in it, that is your karma. How you deal with that is going to directly mm -hmm. affect your karma in the next moment. So be careful, work out your karma, don't create more. If you want to really unpack and get out of this life as the cleanest slate as you can possibly have. And without, you know, you're for sure, we've had millions and millions of years of accumulating our karma. And now we all of a sudden realize we got to work it out, but that people hate that, you know, well, it's your karma, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. well, no, why me? You can never yeah. say, you, yeah. you're lucky you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I used to tell the kids that, that no matter how bad things got, it's always good because you work that karma up. And I have to say, when they died, I was down there standing, mm -hmm. you know, looking at the whatever, going to details, but realizing, you know, how's this working out for you? You know, this is you know what you preached your whole life. And now it's just like slammed you so hard. And I had to realize that, OK, we all had that karma to have that happen to all of us. It happened to them and it happened to us. And now we have to go forward and do the best we can to uh, accept that and know that we we all had that karma to work out. And now that is worked out. And what are we going to do now? Well, my plan was to go find them and help them and love them some more. So we well, did that's that. That's what we did, yeah, the next 20 years. And thank God really... it all worked out so beautifully. And they're so happy. There's the Mother's Day, Father's Day, birthday, or when they need to talk to us or whatever. It's it's they they call us, and it's it's heartwarming. Yeah, it's wrestling with the why me. You can wrestle with that one forever. Yeah, because yeah, it's yeah, an yeah, illusion yeah. to mm. be shattered. Yeah, the best thing is just to accept whatever's happened and then move on. Do the you know deal with what you can with what you've got and move on you know the getting stuck anywhere isn't a, isn't a good thing but the you know the why me thing is is a total misunderstanding the why you is because that's what your life is that's what you've created in the past and now it's ripened and you're experiencing it but you don't want to experience it again yeah so best thing to do is let it go forgive everyone and find that kindness in yourself and 
manifest it, you know, make an effort, you know, do something for somebody, doesn't matter who, relative, whatever, do something kind that consciously that you do to help them in their life and you will actually change. You change into becoming a better person. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's whenever you're struck by a tragedy that no one should go through, it's a it's a moment where you have an opportunity to not let that happen again. And it's really hard, though, because you, you're so overwhelmed with emotion and you fall into the trap of why me or, you know, there's no God. You know, you just fall into all these traps that but what those traps do is they trap you in the same pattern. And if you get trapped, you're going to repeat it again. You're going to repeat it again. So it yeah. seems to me like the biggest tragedies, I know this is hard to think about, and, and when it took me a long time when I lost my son, to years to come to the idea that this thing that happened to me, this worst tragedy of my life, became one of the greatest learning experiences. And I'm fortunate to have had that happen to me because I was able to find a way to make help me become whole and I never would have become whole had I not had that tragedy. So, and I, I, I mean, I, I get goosebumps thinking and talking about it, but I, I share it because I want anyone who's ever in a situation where they feel overwhelmed, whether it's a parent dying, a child dying, a sibling dying, or whether it's losing your house or getting a divorce, whatever the tragedy is in your life, take a moment to be thankful that it happened to you. I know that sounds crazy, but if you just take yeah, a moment to feel that, It'll, 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 something will grow inside of you, right? Yeah. 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 That's wise. Wise words. What did you use? It seems like, and this is another point where we can talk about maybe LSD or even hashish. These particular sacraments allow you to take a break from the tragedy and see it from a different perspective. Did you find that to be the case? Yes. Yeah. Well, you went with our thing also was you don't, you have to think about the person who died and you know, there's already so much uh, they've found that when you die, you know, be careful what you say around that dead mm -hmm. person, they can still hear you. And so you want to, you want to be careful with that. And then you want to just, uh, you know, like the Tibetans read them through the Bardos. There are special prayers and there's prayers that tell you, Oh, nobly born, you know, whoever they are, you've died. Because so often, uh, like the movie Ghost, mm -hmm. that was the, the, the greatest movie about what really happens. He got shot and died, but he was still chasing after the guy who stole his wife's purse. And then he came back and he was like, wait, what? what's going on? And that, that's like really what happens. So you have to be so, have so much empathy for the person that died because they're in the same state you're in, only they've crossed over to the other side. So, and, and that's why, you know, they can materialize in front of you, or you can feel their, their hand on you, or you can hear their voice or hear their breath. And uh, you can, you really are doing those things. It's, you know, people like to cut and dry. Oh, um, what's a word everybody says you have to do after somebody dies, you have to, you know, process it or whatever mm -hmm. and get over it. You're not ever going to get over it. There is no processing. And, uh, you know, so easy, easy to say, I guess, but if you're really going through it, then you get a whole new perspective on it. And now you can say, I know how you feel because mm -hmm. you do know how you feel. If it doesn't really happen to you as a human being, you can't 
generate that kind of um, level of empathy for another person in that type of a trauma and uh, be, be really able to help where now you can. Uh, and that's sad. And it's the other thing, the Buddha has a story, this lady lost her baby. She brought him to the Buddha because he can bring him back to life. And he said, okay, I'll do that. But you have to take these mustards, mustard seed and, and go to every house. And if you find someone who has not experienced death in their family, come back to me and I'll bring your kid back to life. Well, they couldn't. Mm -hmm. Every family had experienced a tragedy like that. Mm. So that made her realize it wasn't just all about her, that this is what happens. And then you have to go back into the karma of that was their karma and your karma. And a lot of times I yeah. think, when, especially when children die as, as infants, that was just like, that was their role. That was mm. what they were supposed to do. That was your karma with them. They were going to come and give you the biggest gift and teach you the biggest lesson of, of impermanence. And then you have to realize that and you have to go with that and you have to do the best you can. And that will change the path you're on. You yeah. will meditate more. You will pray more um, and, and be, become a better person because of that experience. And that's what you have to take from those kind of things. And, and you don't want to also miss when they come to visit you. You're so grief stricken. You can't right. like when we were looking for our boy in India, we went there the one time for six weeks and we went to orphanages and schools and monasteries and everything. And we didn't find him, didn't find him. And then we came back and we told that one Lama and he said, well, let's see, you know, and he told us, well, he was there. You didn't see him because you're so obscured in your own thing. And we didn't even think we were, we thought we were really, you know, there. Well, that's so that was illusion. Okay, yeah. yeah. Illusion shattering. And then he did give us this hundred syllable chant that we had to do. And he said, it's just like looking in the mirror. There's nothing wrong with the mirror. You can't see your reflection because the mirror is dirty. You got to <laughs> clean the mirror and then you can see your reflection again. So this hundred syllable mantra, I had to do a hundred thousand times. And, um, I swear when I pulled that last bead over, we found them. So you just have to keep you You're going to find that free. story real interesting. Yeah. It's crazy. I already do. It, <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy how it evolved from one thing to another. To uh, another. Yeah, that was a, uh, it still uh, is a ride. Yeah. But hey, it, 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 no, I was just saying like it, it brings, as we're talking about cycles of life, you know, it brings back the idea that we were speaking about earlier about the 22 year old kid who was saying things like, what's that matter? We're all going to die. We're going to blow up the planet anyway. Right. And on some level, like that brings me a lot of joy because he's already being molded to understand. Don't worry about the future. Like that's a hard lesson, but he's like, I think that whole generation is being force fed this. Oh, Hey, Oh, you're all going to die. You're all going to die. But that what better way to wake them up to say, Hey, don't worry about the future. Worry about right now. Yeah, but that don't you know that, and that's just something I caught from listening to your story. And it just, it, in some ways, it's so poetic to me because we're talking about three generations from from your guys' generation to mine to the next generation, and we're like this bridge. Here, you guys are providing the story. 
here we are on the platform interpreting it. And then it can go right to that next generation to be like, oh, maybe this is the pattern here, you know? And it just, I don't know. I, it brings me a lot of joy to think about. It. <laughs> no, good. Yeah, it's true. Thank you for sharing that. But yeah. Yeah. Brought it in. I, yeah. I, um, I'm going to have to have you guys back. Like, I, I feel like we've only covered well, we've covered so much. Like, I, I think that okay, I've only covered to here in the book so far. I'm only on. Okay, let me talk about this airplane I scam from that. Karachi. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? Like, oh, I, God. <laughs> you know, my buddy that I sent over there, he just died a week ago. Oh. And um, well, we went to his, you know, gathering and stuff. And his wife, that was the wife at that time, was there. He had had a few wives during their life, but there's one he had a couple of daughters with, and uh, she was actually the young girl. She was only 16 when she got with him. So she wanted to talk about it. So we talked about everything. But she was the one that I actually gave the money to to send over there to get him out. But so, but what do you want to know about? You want to know the story? Yes, please. Okay. So this one friend of ours that we're still in contact with, actually, Wendy went to, um, Holland with him and Morocco, and he was with her when they sold all that LSD. So she has history with with this guy, you know, from before. But his dad was an airline pilot, and he figured out how that you could get into those panels on the airplanes uh, with the little key you could get in, in the bathroom. There. In the and bathroom. the way it went was the uh, the airplanes came from the east, and they would uh, you know make their normal stops Tokyo. Uh, 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 Thailand, blah, blah, all the way. And then Hawaii, Oahu was their last stop because it was actually the entry point to America. Hmm. So when you got to Hawaii, you had to clear customs, even if your plane was going on to LA and that's where you were going. So they took everything off the plane, you went through customs and they put everything back on the plane, you reboarded and they took you on. Well, that what made it happen was it was always the same plane. The one plane went from Karachi through Delhi and Thailand and Japan and all those places, stopped in Honolulu and then went on to LA. Well, you could, at that point, there was no check on anything. You could board a plane with any amount of luggage, with whatever. Uh, they, they There was no check. There was no security check. And um, what you would do is you'd get a, you'd buy hash in Karachi and you'd 20 pounds and you'd get on the plane and then somewhere before Hawaii, you would go to the bathroom and you would undo this panel. You'd put your 20 pounds behind the panel, lock it back up. You'd get off, go through customs. And then on your way to LA, you'd go back in the bathroom with your luggage, take the hash out and put in your luggage. And when you got to LA, you could just walk away. So that was the scam. Real easy. Great scam. Great scam. And Man. I had I had the connection in Hawaii, I mean, in um, Karachi, and I Great knew place. I'd been there a few times before. I knew the hotels and blah, blah, blah. So I got these two guys, and I told them, look, here's what you do. And I get, told them everything. You go to this hotel, you talk to no one. Then sometime, you know, and the next day you walk to this place where in town, and that's the connection. And you'll be able to buy 20 pounds from them. And I said, and you buy that, you go back to your hotel room, you still don't talk to anyone, and you don't leave the hotel. And then when the day comes three days later to get on the flight, you just take your hash, and I gave them the tool and told them how to do it. Well, the story 
goes. <laughs> and never talked to the cab driver. They got in the car. They got in the taxi. And the taxi man said, oh, you know what? What do you want? I have hashish. And they said, oh, yeah, we want hashish. So the guy said, I can deliver it to you. So they went to the hotel. The guy brought him the 20 pounds. They paid him. And they told him, well, I'll take you to the airport. So he came back in the morning and got him and took him to the airport. And as soon as they stepped out of the taxi, they were arrested. And that's because the taxi driver was in cahoots with the police and everyone else. And they had not done what I told them. And they were sitting ducks. At that point, they were in jail. But their jail in Pakistan, the jails were so bad, they actually had them in a hotel room. Mm. Because they couldn't take these young kids and put them in jail. And I sent the money over. And sure enough, a couple of days later, they showed up in L.A., of course, without the hash or anything. But um, it was strictly because they went over there and we were just stupid. Yeah. I have to tell you, though, what else happened was one time a guy was doing the, the uh, scam and they changed planes in Honolulu. Yeah, they changed airplane. <laughs> well, his hash was in this airplane somewhere else. <laughs> so when he got to California, he couldn't get there was no hash there. But this one guy, his dad was an airline pilot. And he was able to chase down that airplane. He was able to find out through his dad's connections where that airplane was. And he actually flew to France or somewhere. They found out where the plane was, got on that plane, and took the hash off. No way. That's yeah. Yeah, way. crazy. <laughs> so, Isn't that funny? Yeah, that's a good story. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty funny that's a great, story. Bad a story for the two kids. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, they should have done what I told them. Yeah, that's you got to be careful who you do stuff with. <laughs> you got to be careful when you're smuggling hash out of uh, Afghanistan. Yeah. <laughs> well, a lot of times people would turn on. You know, if you were going to go do something big with somebody, you turn on mm -hmm. with them and make sure everything was copacetic, that they were going to be able to handle whatever. And you had to be, you know, man. When I did things. I was who I was, whatever my name was, that's who you were. Your suitcase was packed with, you know, Nordstrom's nighty and clothes and you wore stockings and, you know, you, you whoever you were being personifying at the time. And that's who you were from beginning to end. And when we were doing our thing, we ran into some other people in Iran in the bathroom. I walk in the bathroom and I see this girl crying, but I can't see who she is. It's mm -hmm. just a girl for, for what I think. And she's over there crying and crying. And I just, just felt so bad. And I'm like, well, maybe I could just get her a glass of water or something, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, I say, you know, are you okay? She turns around. She's my girlfriend from Laguna. Whoa. I know. So I'm like, oh my God. And she had had a falling out with the person she was traveling with. And it was just this nightmare and everything. And I'm like, oh my God. So we spent quite a while crying and I mean, her crying and me comforting her and giving her whatever advice to just get, you know, finish the scam, get home, get your money mm -hmm. and, and go. And uh, that, but I told her, I said, when we go out in the restaurant, I don't know you. Mm -hmm. Do not come to our table and you go tell your friend if he hasn't already seen the person I'm with, don't talk to us. We'll party our heads off when we get back to Laguna. But as of right now, this is who I am. And that's who you are. And we don't know each other. So uh, that's what we did. And that's Discipline. how you do it. Yeah. yeah, that's how you do it. You yeah. don't, you can't do it any other way. You draw attention to yourself. You don't give $100 tips and, 
you know, be ridiculous or you're going to draw attention to yourself. So you don't, you're just, you know, I was just on, on vacation with my supposed husband. Mm -hmm. So that's how you, that's how you do it. And if you can't do it that way and you want to party or you want to go do something else, that's where all the trouble comes from. Yeah. Yeah. You, you mix too much, too much, um, pleasure with business, you know, it it gets in the way. Yeah. I'm wondering, like, Wendy, you, uh, Ronnie was saying that, you know, something along the lines of 10 grams of LSD, you know, like, and I'm sure Ronnie, you've dealt with large quantities too. It's, you know, in the not too distant past, I've had an incident where I was taking some Ethlad and putting it into an alcohol solution and just a little bit got on my hand. And I'll tell you what, I felt it. You know what I mean? I felt it. Like, you got to be really careful when you deal with different forms and transporting it apart. Did you guys ever, like, what, what's the method for that? Like, you know, it seems like it's, even though it's such a small quantity, like a, the crystals of that, it seems like it's pretty potent and can be kind of dangerous. Oh, uh, what do you mean? Like, how, how, like, did you ever have to transport? Like, if you take the crystals and then, like, you you lay it on the paper, was that ever something that, that never happened in process. That would be something that happened, like, I don't know, later down the line or something like that. Really high. If you were tabbing up sunshine into tabs, right? By the, you sit there for eight hours making all these tabs and this assembly line thing, and you know your nostrils are all orange and your hands mm. are all orange, and you're you don't realize it, but you've gotten really high during yeah. the a little at a time, a little at a time, and everybody's in there. You know, there's like 10 of you, five on one side of the table, five on the other, and you're all doing doing the same thing, making up, making these tabs on these little cardboard things or wooden things. And uh, I remember when we did that for all day long and we were ready to go back, back down to the house. And there it was in this big, long barn thing that we turned into a tabbing room. But we opened the two doors and there was this vista that was so beautiful. And we were all just like, <laughs> Wow! Because <laughs> we none of us right. realized. I, we never thought about wearing gloves. Yeah, we never. <laughs> thought about it, your, it would give you actually give it in, in your, your system through underneath your fingernails. Yeah. Right. You know, you keep doing this, and eventually it drives it in there. But like she said, it comes on a little at a time, and you don't realize after six, eight hours how high you are. Yeah. And you know, until something happens, like they open the doors or something. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You know, you just go out with the doors. But yeah, that was really common. Like I said, I don't know why we never thought about where it was. We just didn't seem yeah. seem like that was part of it. Yeah. Well, uh, I was, I, when I grew up, I was very anti any kind of drugs because I was an asthmatic and I had allergies. Mm. So if there was a day that I could breathe and not have to take anything, I was in heaven. And I was a gymnast and a ballerina and a swimmer and, you know, very active physically. And uh, I had my one boyfriend and he was older than I was and he had this great Mustang and he was a really great gentleman. But one day he says, well, let's, let's, I want to take you out to this place. And it was kind of a makeout place. So I was all, "Mm, I don't know, (laughs) I I want to go there, you know? So we went and I, I said, okay. And we went. And then we were there and he's all open up the glove box. So I opened up the glove box and he had, he was in the service. He had just come back from San Francisco and he had actual buds, mm-hmm. not all crumbled up shake, but it was buds. And he said, do you know what that is? And I said, well, yeah, I'm not stupid. It's marijuana. 
And he said, well, you want to smoke some? And I said, no way. I said, I'm fine. I am so high. You know, I thought I was just a day with just being able to be me was just so delightful to me. And uh, so he rolls up a joint. He said, well, I'm going to smoke. And I all right, yeah, knock yourself out. Uh, it's fine. I, I'm not judging nothing. So he's smoking. He says, come on, come on, try it. And I said, it won't do anything to me. I'm already as high as you can get. I'm so happy. <laughs> and so finally, I gave in. And he said, it's good for asthma. So which some people say, I don't know, that's debatable. But um, anyway, so I started smoking with him. And that was the first time I had ever smoked. And so we smoked like three joints and he was just <laughs> wasted and he's like looking at me and he's all, oh my God, I can't believe it that this isn't affecting you. And uh, I said, I feel really good. You know, I, I don't know how much better I can feel. And he said, well, let's, let's get out and take a walk. And you know, Mustangs have these giant doors and I opened up the door and we were in the middle of the forest. That's where this path was. And, uh, Oh my God, the smell of the pine trees and the earth and the mushrooms that were growing on the ground and the, you know, the night air and the stars. I was just like, oh my God, this is so beautiful. You're right. And he's like, <laughs> oh, thank God. And we just sat on the hood of his car looking at the stars and he knew all about astronomy. So that was really fun. And, uh, and we had a great time and he took me home and then I I wanted to smoke marijuana after that. <laughs> I thought it was a really good thing. So anyway, that's just funny. Yeah. No, it's it speaks volumes of the of the power of cannabis and just the way in which it can change our state of mind. You know, it yeah. it's it's amazing how those stories stay with us forever. And those are transformative stories, you know, and it's, it's not only yeah. a relation, it's your relationship with with the the earth in a way. It's your relationship with with cannabis, it's it's fascinating to think about. Yeah, it was, was LSD is a gateway drug. Yeah, <laughs> I took LSD before I smoked marijuana. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> what is your take on the two of them together? I know that when I was younger, I would I would always smoke a little bit towards the end of it, and that would kind of bring about another sort of wave. What? Yeah, what's your? That's good, but the marijuana isn't pure like the hash. Yeah. There's a lot of physical there. So in one state, it opens, you know, it, whatever you want to say, closes your mind, whatever opens you to the metaphysical side of things. Mm -hmm. But you also get a little druggy out of it. Mm. You know, and it kind of brings you down a little bit. But if yeah. you have hashish, it's not like that. You just go back out. Mm. And there, there is a lot of difference there. But I think it's good. But I, yeah, either way, well, either way. Yeah, most people, you know, whatever, it, it takes that moment in time and shuts your mind down to what is thinking and then opens it up to the metaphysical realm realm so you know it's a great thing marijuana is a great thing for i think it's very therapeutic yeah. i think it's a great medicine it yeah. is medicine. It's you know what medicine. you know what else um ashish really i mean you know we've tried doing this or thinking about incorporated but what it really helps you with is meditation. Mm -hmm. It helps you with yoga. It helps you with different um, well, physical activities where you kind of want to reach a certain state of mental stability while you're, you know, doing whatever else. And it, it really does help out, um, yeah. you know, that that um, 
you know, if you take the time to smoke a little hash before you do yoga, your mind will already clear out. And that'll give you, you know, the opportunity to concentrate on, you know, whatever you're concentrating on when you do the yoga. And in meditation, you really, I mean, you can't think enough about it because it closes your mind down to the the speediness of it, you know, that mm -hmm. this, think of that. And it kind of puts it on one track where you can focus. Calms all those crazy monkeys. So there's um, mm. you know, the hashes. It can be used for a lot of different things um, that aren't being used today. Yeah. I know they have these marijuana yoga classes, but the marijuana is the same thing. You smoke it, and then in a half hour or so, you're going to little get a little drag out of it. You know, it's going to be physically dragging. So it isn't exactly the best thing for doing yoga or something like that. Um, if it's all you got, well, that's different. That's great. Yeah. It's better than nothing. But you're seeing that these days. Um, yeah. You know, there's a lot of places, especially out here in California, where they have these clubs, and you join the club, and you can go there and smoke anytime you want, and then they have all these activities, mm. you know, where you can join the marijuana yoga class and things like that. And they're perfectly legal, you know, because it's a, it's a private thing. It's not public. As long as you're not public, you can smoke, you can do whatever you want. That's why we were able to do that in our book signings. Mm. We would make it invitation only, and it was a private affair. So we could do anything we wanted in there. We weren't against the law. Really fun. Yeah. <laughs> everybody yeah, had a good I was going to say everybody, too. Everybody had a good everybody time. The other thing that. with the hashish is it, 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 it can also, you know, calm those monkeys, but I have a tendency i'm a super multitasker he calls me the energizer bunny <laughs> and uh so but sometimes i have a problem with that because i'm going in so many different yeah. directions i feel like uh i saw this thing on people tweakers or whatever they're called where they're they they start doing one thing in one room and then i realize i'm running from room to room and i know oh i'll do this now and I'll, i'm like oh my god this is not good and i'll take a couple puffs of hash and then all of a sudden everything's doable Everything's fine, and I get so much done that it's an absolutely amazing. So it's it is very medicinal to um, get your ducks in a row, so to speak. Yeah, it makes sense, and I think it speaks to the idea of um, heightened states of awareness. You know, sometimes people use different substances, but you know, when you become aware in a height in a height, it was it was the first time I really grasped this was when my friend told me. You know what? If you're gonna take the test, if you're gonna study high, you gotta take the test high. Because you you're in, you know what I mean? Like you're in that state of consciousness. If you come out of that and try to do something, you're not on the same level. So if you wanna, if you're gonna do something later, if you're gonna study here, you should also take the test here. You know, yeah. and it and it kind of speaks to the idea of becoming or building a relationship with whatever sacrament you're using. And it's 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 interesting that. I think a lot of things can be done, whether it's yoga, whether it's drafting, you know, whether it's w whatever you're going to do, if you're going to study it normal, then you're going to perform it at a normal rate. But if you're going to study it at a heightened state of awareness, then you can see it from a different angle. Like, we, all, we, all, we only know the heightened state of awareness. Yeah. <laughs> I, really I hear think, you. I'm, I think I've smoked more joints than anybody on earth. I can attest, <laughs> I to, really do. I can attest to that. We haven't been without hash or marijuana for 40 years. At least. <laughs> and we smoke constantly, and we only know the heightened state. We've never been to the monastery. We weren't high. 
We've never written one word in any of our books that we weren't high. Um, it's just, that's our state of mind. Well, I did try when I was going to college and I was taking anatomy and physiology, I thought, okay, I better really straighten up here now and pay attention. And so I was just studying my, you know, books that are as big as an encyclopedia and, you know, answering all the questions and stuff. But I was really struggling. I was making these cassette tapes and listening mm -hmm. to them on my way to school. And one of my classmates, he was just so kicked back and he was doing fine. And I said, yeah, what's your secret? He said, marijuana. <laughs> like, oh, my God. <laughs> he said, I go home, smoke a joint, study. And so I thought, all right, I'm going to incorporate that into my <laughs> routine. And it was so amazing that I could just have a little joint and um, and be able to study, retain everything that I was reading. It was so fascinating. I was really, you really get into it, how everything's connected. And the other thing I was going to say was as far as edibles go, mm. uh, I had made some edibles when we were doing the things with the dispensaries and it, it was a huge business. It turned out I made, they bought tens of thousands, tens of, of thousands of cookies, but I made them. They were the reason they were so popular is they were different. They weren't marijuana cookies. I made them out of the crystals. Mm. We got the hash crystals off of the weed and I used the crystals to make the cookies because myself personally, I hate edibles for myself mm. personally. I hate being doped up. I like expanding. Mm. I don't want to get dumbed down. And even even if at night or whatever, I don't like the hangover from the marijuana mm. that, you know, the whole plant eating it is I don't think is a, a is it, uh, it'll give you a good night's sleep, but it's going to take you till noon or one o'clock to really wake up. Wake up. Mm. And um, that's why I like the uh, the crystals was a very pure because I thought, hmm, I bet that would work. And it did. And it was very popular. We call our cookies e go go. Yeah, because you're e go go. <laughs> yeah, e go go. We sold tens of thousands of yeah. those cookies. Now, if you would take two, you know, we had them, um, we had our it tested, so we knew exactly what was in it and uh, how much, you know, to take. So you so take we can a, label it. Yeah, a quarter of a cookie, and then it, you know whatever you can take another quarter. Quarter. There were sixty milligrams of each. Each, yes, mm. that was that wow. became yeah, too, that strong too strong for the law. So <laughs> then it was like a quarter of a cookie, and uh, that that was that was really good. That those were really popular. People really really liked them. But if you eat, my point was, if you eat too much, people always said I should put a benign one in with the loaded one mm. because they wanted more. They were so delicious. They were these oatmeal, mm. toasty oaty recipe from someone's grandma. Organic, everything. Or everything <laughs> organic. And because uh, they'd always end up eating two or three and then they'd get jacked up and get a really high and stay up Come all sleep. night. We never had a complaint because everybody would like wrote their best song. But a lot of song. people called us and told us. <laughs> yeah. I didn't sleep at all that time. Yeah. My one girlfriend, <laughs> the whole cookie. she called me and she said, hey, go, 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 man. When was it? And I said, well, you're such an over medicator. Yeah. That, that was your problem. So we suggested a quarter, which yeah. is still a pretty high dose. Yeah. But, but that would work for the boy, medicine. Boy, did they love those cookies. Yeah. Oh, God. It's funny. You know what? I, I was talking to some friends in Oregon and, um, they were talking about after marijuana was legalized in Oregon, there was this boom, but it's driven down prices to like next to nothing. Like they were telling me. And part of me thinks like may maybe 
maybe the it doesn't want to be sold. Maybe the medicine or maybe the spiritual nature, maybe it doesn't want to be sold for a profit. You know, is that is that too far out there to think? Like, is that what happened in California? No, everybody has to make a living. Right. But, oh, yeah. uh, and so, there's uh, there's overhead, but the, the thing, we were never for legalization. Mm. How come? Well, once you bring corporate in, yeah. well, then what? Yeah, then it's, it's all going to be a follow the money. You know, yeah, it's going to yeah. be over. They're going to have investors and, you know, they're going to have, uh, you know, stocks and they're, you know, you know how it is. Uh, hey, we right. made 10,000 this week. Let's try to make 20,000 next week and all this. But, and then they have these bars. The eye can see greenhouses full of legal weed, but they're spraying it all. Mm. You cannot get organic and it's feminized seeds. Mm. GMO, seeds. GMO seeds sprayed with pesticides that now they've made, you know, mm. government's made. Oh, okay. That's okay now. Cause you can eat the tomato two days right. after you turn this on. That's nice. Can you smoke it? If you concentrate so it down, ruin the yeah, they the ruined it. Falling apart. Yeah, any, any weed you buy in a dispensary from one of the big distributors has been sprayed with poison. Wow, on it, and it's a feminized seed. They're not going to take a chance of losing a crop for their investors. Mm. I just read this morning this one distributor in California, uh, they they're they're bellying up, but what happened was they were fronting stuff to everyone. So they had all these dispensaries that they would front to, and the dispensaries owed them. So mm -hmm. they had a, you know, they had a, a list of uh, money that they were collecting along the way. Okay, well they were going out of business, but what it said was um, that the investors will be paid off first before they pay off the the people that own front of the stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's because these guys come in with hundred million dollars. And start up a legal crop like when he said i've seen greenhouses in santa barbara as far as you can see and wow. it was a com commercial outfit they're all so they've, they've completely ruined the whole industry everyone we know that used to grow marijuana and sold it either legally or illegally they've stopped they've you can't compete because there's no yeah. there's no money in it. and the dispensaries are so you have to be licensed you can't you know that's what put us right out of the market. You can't get in because you don't have those papers. So these big corporate entities are come in and why they're not in trouble because it's still federally illegal. Wow. But somehow they can sell stock on the market. I mean, the government can do just mm. whatever they want. You know, there's like, yep. you know, if you tried to do that, you'd be in jail. But yep. you know, they can come in with this, you know, and I'm not, I'm not kidding. hundred million dollars. We've seen some. Yep corporations and things raise that much money to start these big startups and they don't care because you know they're going to do a ponzi thing or they're going to just gather mm -hmm. more money after they get going here we'll we'll make an income of this and then we'll get more money from the investors and you know all that stuff's hitting the the bottom now because too many of them got in there there's too much product and they've lost a lot of the uh people of buying it because of the prices have gone, you know, where where they don't people would were better off trying to buy it from their buddy or the guy down the street or something yeah, like except that. Except that guy's not even growing it anymore because now, yeah. it was too much overhead for him to even try to keep up when there was nobody to sell it to. So everybody's scared to buy illegal it, weed like you yeah, know. It's really, you know, it's really changed now and it's really hard to get good organic marijuana for anyone. 
Yeah. From a from a true strain. Because whoever was they were getting up from before is then growing it. Yeah. Yeah. They're all those feminized seeds. Yeah, all feminized seeds. So terrible. So sad. So it's corporate's sad. ruined the whole industry. Yeah. They really have. So another industry. What's going to straighten it out? I don't know. We don't know. Do you think that that's like the similar path for like legalized mushrooms and psychedelics? That all depends, but yeah. that's a little harder thing to tap into because they, you don't have the, the a buyer base like they do. Mm, okay. They already had 40% right. of the Right, we whatever. established the whole market. Yeah. And so I don't think they'll do that with, with that. I think you're going to see small groups buy these resorts in these other right. countries and set up their own platform for whatever they want to do with psychedelics. They're using a lot of different ones. A lot right. of the ayahuasca, you know, are all, some of them have a different program. You want to do ayahuasca, you want to do uh, the uh, psilocybin, you know, that, and there's another one, what, I don't know, Rogaine or what's the word I'm looking for? Ibogaine. Ibogaine, yeah. So you can actually contact these people and have different experiences now on the, the different things. But it's not commercialized. It's still really small. Um, you know, it's expensive. And um, some people are doing it and more power to them. Yeah. And the more that do it, the more it opens up in these countries and places like Belize and Jamaica, they get used to licensing these things and they'll license more. Yeah. And it'll become more and more popular. So I think it's a good thing. I think everything's moving forward, you know, yeah. the way it should. And as far and as mushrooms, mushrooms are... You know, marijuana that that does have a problem with pests or whatever. You have right. to be really careful, and so consequently, you know, we've had to abort crops because we're not going to ever spray. But it people will do that. But with mushrooms, mushrooms is are so sacred. You know, mm. fantastic fungi and all. You yeah. know, I mean, it's so much more than meets the eye. That that's the final mm. product of this mm. huge thing that's happening. And uh, I think that would be uh, that would be harder to bastardize that particular industry just because of the sacredness of the mushroom and the power of mm -hmm. the mushroom from where it's just too, too strong to, and it, it doesn't need it. It doesn't have, you know, white flies and <laughs> right. your nightmare. Uh, so, yeah, there, there it, I think it, I think that's a more sacred thing, but it's also a psychedelic. And the mm -hmm. government is afraid of psychedelics. Terrified. Yeah. Yeah. We'll change your mind. Yeah, it, it really will. I I um I love talking to you guys. This is really fun. We're coming up on three hours and it feels like I we've been doing it. Like I, I know. Oh my gosh. I know. Did you, we, we start charging after three hours. Yeah. I know. I know. I know. <laughs> well, you guys are gonna have to come back. I know we can talk about the the new book coming out and um Let's get together more often. This is really, really fun. And I, I think that we just kind of scratched the surface of it. Maybe it's because, you know, we, we're just kind of getting to know each other a little bit. And But I really, really enjoyed it. I feel like I really learned a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, let us know down the line when we have time. We'll be glad to get back with you and talk about anything. Fantastic. Talk yeah. about microdosing. You know, we give lectures on a lot of things. Yeah, at college. A history, uh, you know, of, of the psychedelics and you know, whatever we're we're asked quite often to come and uh, you know give lectures on this or that or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe we could do a panel. Maybe we could bring some more people in, and we could um, maybe you could preach a little bit of the message of the brotherhood, sort of a 
you know, a, a re-embracing the spiritual nature of the pure process or something like that. But, you know, sure. for everyone, you should write that down. <laughs> I, should, I should. I always, I'm really good at streaming consciousness. I should write stuff down more often. Like that. At least it's recorded, right? Yeah, that's a good point. There you go. That's a good point. And so I just want to point everybody, I want to show them the cover of the book here. This is what it looks like for those that are watching. And then the link to the website will be down in the show notes in there. And I recommend everybody check it out. It's a, it's, it's one of my favorite biographies now, and it's like a thrill ride. It's a biography. It's a geography lesson. It's a history lesson. It's, it's so much in there. And you guys did a great job at telling some of the stories and I'm really, really thankful. And, um, uh, Mark Rose is chiming in. He's like, wow, I knew it would be good. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to say one okay. thing about the uh, one yeah. last thing Whatever about the, the bookmarker in your book. I love it. Yeah. It. it should have a picture of uh, of all the cars in the yes. world. And I, that's a little tiny thing. But what I see the map behind you, what I had done is I got a map. It was a shower curtain, but it's a map of the world. <laughs> and then I, um, I, those are all embroidered lines. Oh, I am okay. Yeah. I embroidered. I don't know. Where are we? Move it right way. there. Yes. There Perfect. So, and these, these are all the cars that have <laughs> a little nine, nine vehicles that yeah, I sent to Afghanistan. It just runs things. And there's a little color code in front of each car. And then that's the color embroidery thread I used. And it mm. shows it shows where each car was purchased and then the journey that car went on to get back to California. So where it was purchased and where it was unloaded and then the journey that it went, where it was dropped off in Europe. And uh, I was and making- And little pictures of the cars on the yeah, top. Yeah, and the little pictures of the car. <laughs> and we didn't mean to do that, but when he was doing his- writing his book he's like well and, and i said well let me let me see that and so we we brought one up and he printed it out and we cut it out and i said oh this is so fun and then he printed out all these you've got that bookmark right yeah you've i got do this. i do it's on yeah. my desk over here well, that's what okay. that's what that yeah, is that's what that is we've got it right here in full that's full people's size. favorite thing though yeah they love it they yeah it's like a story within a story yeah yeah, yeah because we we said we literally went around the world to bring you the best ash <laughs> I'm so glad you guys did. Yeah, yeah, we are too. It, it was our, it was, you know, whatever, God's will. It's we the were, gift that keeps on giving. It is. And we do have the, we have the movie. We're the only ones yes, that have our, this movie, by the way. Orange Sunshine, is that showing us? Yeah. 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 Um, and you can get it on our website. But, um, and it's a DVD. Which a lot of people don't even have DVDs, but that's the only way you can watch it now. It's not streaming anywhere. Right. Uh, Amazon ran it for three years and they took it off. And we've got these little physical copies, but it's the only way you can see the movie. But you can order that also online. And if you go to Ronnie Bevan on the internet, you get pages of stuff. So if you want to find anything, a book, one of our books or the movie or a link or anything, or even fun stories, um, you just put my name in there and yeah. it'll come up. And one of the one of the reasons we came out, well, besides the statute of limitations that run out, <laughs> um, one of the reasons we came out was because when when we were all on the run and we left, we were gone. Nobody knew where, we didn't even know where each other was. So then when we all started kind of coming back in, um, 
and getting things taken care of, uh, we realized that all these people had said all this like horrible stuff. Not they didn't think it was horrible. They were saying they were brotherhood and this is what the brotherhood mm. did. And they did these despicable things that we would never do, unethical things we would never mm. do. And so that's why we really came out, yeah. you know, with gusto. There's a lot of bad information. About yeah, a lot of bad there. information that's totally not true. And it's such a, a shame because it distracts from what the brotherhood really was, which was sole purpose to make your life better and to make the whole world better, to heal the world. It was, is what the brotherhood's about. And we all still are. The ones that are still active are still actively you know, like my little grandson said, God, Grandma, you're still doing this? I said, well, yeah, I'm still turning on the world. Yeah. <laughs> what, what can I say? It's That's still, awesome. What's good in the past well, so, is still good. So get back to us. Uh, we have a lot of time. Okay. You know, so whenever you whenever you think is good for you, let us know. We'll see if we can fit it in. And, of course, like I said, we're willing to talk about whatever. Now, you're going to take this, vi this, this uh, video and cut it up yeah yeah make sure um we we streamed it live what i'm gonna yeah. do is i'll oh, really? send yeah we streamed it live to like seven different platforms two facebook oh, channels twitch boy. twitter I didn't youtube trump that. rumble <laughs> yeah i thought you'd cut out any bad things I, I don't i don't think there was one bad thing in there uh -huh. <laughs> john swore one time <laughs> he's human we're all human right and i, I, saw, I saw one time in the movie too yeah <laughs> <laughs> wow well, yeah, so it's you watch that movie fun. you're gonna really enjoy it and yeah. especially now you've talked to us and you have some history it's gonna be better yeah yeah i, I i'm a huge fan of the books because I, I i want to i love movies too but I want to read the words and then envision it in my own mind before I see someone else's envision of it. You know what okay. I mean? Like I, I yeah. want to envision okay. it. Oh, well, that's good. Yeah. 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 We're putting it on on um we're putting it on audio right now, also. Fantastic. Right, yeah, we're right yes. in the middle of that. And then we're gonna do from one life to the next on audio also. Is that gonna be on Audible? Yeah, yeah. Audible. They on people audible. want it. They you know, yeah, everybody wants it too. So they can hear it. And it's funny thing too. Uh, we've, I've thrown out a. I'm, uh, I'm, I do the reading myself. Perfect. And Perfect. Um, we've thrown out a couple of pieces to friends, and they've all been thrilled to death. Some of them think, "Wow, it's a new story." And not a new story. You read it, but somehow when you hear it, it makes a difference than when you read it. And anyway, that's what we found out. But it's yeah. getting close. It's getting real close. And. Uh, It'll be real enjoyable to be able to listen to me tell the story. And, and also, it's going to open it up to Europe and places like that. You can't really get our book anywhere because we're, we're not on Amazon. And the shipping. So the shipping is like $26. Yeah. Even though we've sold around the world quite a few of them. But the Audible, you buy it and then you download it. So anyone can buy it. So that'll open it up uh, us to Europe and Asia and all those places we haven't been able to get to. It's just going to be real fun. It's getting close. We're getting down to editing. Yeah, it's like I said. I, I I think that the the next transition is that you guys will be playing a bigger role as teachers. You know, it's 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 just a shift. You know, it's it's gone from yeah. being in Afghanistan and now it's telling the story. And and in telling the story, you inspire other people to have lived experience. You know, and it's it's just it's back to the 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 hash and the there's a process. 
beyond making something pure. And a story that is pure inspires other people to go and live a life worth living. So uh, I'm, I'm excited for you guys' future. Oh, well, good. Thank you. <laughs> and it was so nice to get to know you. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Vice versa. Mm -hmm. I think we're going to be talking more often. Enjoy your day in paradise. Yeah. <laughs> All of them. I'm not, I'll be here now. Yeah. Oh, right. <laughs> Our goal. Well done. Bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Have a good afternoon. I love you guys. Thank you for everything that you've done. And I will talk to you soon. Aloha. Okay. Thank Aloha. you. Okay. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that... I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.